0: It was an amazing time. The paper was coining money. The publisher who owned the thing pumped all this money back into it. If I could come up with two or three reasonable ideas, say in South Africa or Germany, they'd send me off there. Go and have a look and come back when you've got them. No rush.
1: Ladies and gentlemen.
0: I had friends who would literally go to a celeb's house and gather up the garbage on garbage day before the truck got there, take it off and go through it. And it actually became a staple of American journalism. They'd analyze garbage of the famous and see what they really were doing. We found people, some of these celebs, were, you know, they're getting an inquiry every week, you know, because <laughs> we found it in the garbage. They were reading it.
2: And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Before we dive into this installment of the program, first allow me to thank the man who provided the theme music For this week's edition of the program, talking about our good buddy Pete Diggins. You can find out more from him at the website www.aurophonic.com. And you spell that A-U-R-O-P-H-O-N-I-C dot com. And if you're a BOA Audio listener out there who wants to contribute music to future installments of the program, simply write to audio at hotmail.com, and I'd be happy to give your tunes a listen. Now let's get down to business on this installment of BOA Audio, and it is a barn burner, my friends. We are going behind the scenes at the National Enquirer with Paul Bannister, author of Tabloid Man and the Baffling Chair of Death. Paul Bannister was formerly the National Enquirer's chief paranormal reporter in the 1970s and 80s during its glory years when it really was part of the National Consciousness Paul Bannister was right in the thick of it. He's going to pull back the curtain on the Notorious tabloid, revealing the amazing amount of money the paper spent on hunting down stories, the bizarre eccentricities of its owner, George Pope, and the unique editorial style behind the Inquirer's famous articles. Along the way, we're going to hear a whole bunch of great stories from Paul Bannister, including his run-in with Sally Field, his investigations into psychometry and remote viewing, we're going to hear an EVP that he inadvertently captured during a phone interview, and tons and tons more captivating tales. Plus, we'll reflect on the evolution and downfall of the tabloid industry as the mainstream media has become more and more like the Inquirer of old. Altogether, it truly is a fascinating revelatory, and rare glimpse at a long-lost era in journalism with Paul Bannister, a man who was in the trenches and on the road, uncovering a world of amazing stories for the National Enquirer. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Paul Bannister, allow me to provide you with a little background on him. Englishman Paul Bannister was a national newspaper reporter in Britain, where he worked for the Daily Mail, the Sun, and the BBC, among others. He was recruited by the National Enquirer, where he became the senior reporter and the tabloid's top specialist in Tales of the Psychic, a post that took him to about 40 countries to interview all kinds of people, from a spirit healer in Iceland to a witch doctor in Brazil. On assignment, Bannister has been menaced by a ghost, shot at by a gunman, endangered by Michael Jackson, booted by Gidget, spat on by a kangaroo, and threatened by a horde that includes actor Tony Curtis footballer George Best, the French police, the Salvadorian military, comedian Bob Hope's daughter, actress Stephanie Power's brother, the murdered John Benet Ramsey's neighbors, a New Jersey mob hitman, Princess Caroline's bodyguards, and a weedy, bespectacled, middle-aged public librarian, plus many others. He has uncovered exclusive tales of the famous that include Oprah's death video, Obama's bikini girl scandal, and the baby Joni Mitchell kept secret even from her parents. He has shared a sardine with Prince Charles, a scotch with Jean Dixon, a prayer with Dog the Bounty Hunter, a grooming with a talking gorilla, and a trade secret with Engelbert Humperdinck. All of this came about because of an old chair that, legend said, killed the people who sat in him. The book we'll be discussing here on the program, of course, is Tabloid Man and the Baffling Chair of Death, and you can find out more about the book and info on Paul Bannister at the website www.bannisterbooks.com and you spell that B-A-N-N-I-S-T-E-R books.com. Links available all over Banal of America, of course. Be sure to check it out. And with all that said, folks, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June seventh, 2011. Paul Bannister takes us behind the scenes at the National Enquirer and the tabloid newspaper industry on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. This time around on the program, we're kind of like really going into what I think is my wheelhouse here of, of the paranormal, really. And that's the people behind the paranormal, the people who investigate this and the people who research this and the people who have looked at it. And also, sort of on a sociological level, we're going to tackle a whole bunch of issues here. I'm going to apologize in advance because I'm probably going to babble like a maniac here because I just read this book today, and I absolutely loved it, and I've been looking forward all evening to this conversation. Our guest is Paul Bannister. He's the author of Tabloid Man and the Baffling Chair of Death, and that is a memoir from him that talks about his life as a writer for the National Enquirer and a whole bunch of the tabloid newspapers, and it is an amazing book. I cannot put this one over enough, folks. This one you have to go out and pick up because I enjoyed it tremendously, and I just know the BOA Audio listeners are going to love this book, and hopefully we can do justice to this fantastic book in this conversation here with Paul Bannister Loved the book. It details his life as a reporter for the National Enquirer and the tabloid newspapers. This guy has lived, he's lived a life of, you know, five to ten people, just the sheer travel alone. He's been to all 50 states, he's been to 40 countries, and he's investigated all of these strange and unusual stories, as well as a whole host of celebrity stories for these tabloid newspapers. Plus, the book, Tabloid Man, offers an invaluable look behind the scenes at what it was like writing for the tabloids back in the 70s and 80s. So it is a real thrill for me to have him on the program. Paul, welcome to BOA Audio. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Well, with that introduction, Tim, I mean, I, I'm pink and wriggling with embarrassment. Um, I hope we can live up to it, that's all. I'm, I'm very grateful to be on the show. It's, uh, it's a powerhouse uh, among podcasts, I know that. And, yeah, there's a lot of ground to cover, isn't there? We've uh, <laughs> certainly got that to do, a lot, uh, of, a lot of stuff to offload.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, like I said, you you've lived the life of 5 to 10 men yourself. Just just the travels and the stories and just it's amazing. I really I just can't put this book over enough. I was captivated by it and and just loved reading it and the insights are just tremendous. Now, we usually start the interviews out here with the bio, the background. Of course, the book is a memoir of your travels and and work here for the tabloid newspapers, but give us a little bit of a thumbnail bio. You know, who is Paul sure, Banister? Yeah. yeah, how did sure. you end up in these situations, uh, you know, that ended up becoming tabloid man.
0: Okay, well, um, just as a reference, for anybody who, who actually wants to see, the, you know, the picture and, and have a laugh, um, there's, a, there's a website called banisterbooks.com, so they can actually sample some bits of the book and um, get some other, I'll probably forget lots of important things, so if they wanted to go to that, they can take a quick look and see themselves. Um, anyway, the, the long, short story is that I was working in the UK. I was working for a national newspaper, the Daily Mail, and um, I was recruited to the Inquirer. Uh, and that came about in an odd sort of way. Um, a friend of mine uh, wandered in in the middle of a gloomy, uh, gloomy winter's day in the north of England, in a white suit. He looked like he'd just escaped from a Busby Berkeley musical. <laughs> white suit. Tan. Brothel sneakers. Brothel creepers on his feet. I said, like, good God, Harry. You know, what's with you? He said, I'm working for this outfit in Florida. He said, he drive to work under the palm trees. Said, the unlimited expenses. And He said, send me some story ideas. Become a stringer. I didn't even know what a stringer was. Anyway, so I sent some ideas, and one of the things I came across was a, a, a story from a pub in, in Yorkshire, and the uh, the pub is called the Busby Stoops, it's uh, it's very old uh, place, of a very old area, it was the Romans settled the area, of course, um, and the story was that anybody who sat in this particular chair in the pub would die within three days, that was a local legend, so I went up there, investigated it, and... Um, Uh, I didn't investigate it in any great depth I have to say I went up there and I reported it and I sent the story back to the Enquirer and eventually it it became their page one lead and the headline was The Baffling Chair of Death which of course is where I got my book title Mm -hmm. so um, because of that uh, I I got recruited uh, I moved to Florida for a couple of years and that was 40 years ago I think (laughs) something like that it seems like 40 years anyway uh, In the 70s, and was there right at the hinge of tabloid history. It was was an amazing time. The paper was coining money. The publisher who owned the thing pumped all this money back into it. If I could come up with two or three reasonable ideas, say, in South Africa or Germany, they'd send me off there. Go and have a look. And come back when you've got them. No rush. So I got to, as I say, travel to about 40 countries around the world, from Iceland to old Brazil. Um, I I got to deal with some serious stories like the CIA uh, training psychic spies um, in California. Or at the other end of the scale, I actually actually wrote a book for Gene Dixon, (laughs) um, who was as fake a psychic as you'll come across (laughs) in, in, in a long day's march. So I had this wonderful time uh, on Travel the World and Other People's Money, and for seven years I was their chief reporter of the paranormal. And it was just happenstance, Tim. I I just fell into it because I'd I'd done that one story about the baffling chair of death. And when they needed to do more psychic stories, they, they did this.
2: I don't even really know where to begin on this because the book is so rich with not just stories that you covered, but also like these behind-the-scenes stories. Let's talk about Gene Pope and the National Enquirer. Right, okay. Well, why don't don't I give you a
0: thumbnail on the way things worked in the 70s? I want to make one fairly clear distinction. The tabloids today are nothing like the tabloids of the 70s and 80s. Yeah. Uh, After Pope died in whatever it was, 87 or 88, I think it was, they became – Celebrity rags, frankly, they're all they're, all they're concerned with. But back, in, back in, in Pope's day, Gene Pope, we'll go back to right to the beginning, Gene Pope was the son of um, a mafia-linked quarry owner in New Jersey, a millionaire quarry owner. Um, Gene, uh, who boasted that his godfather was Frank Costello of the Bonano family, you know, the godfather of the Bonanno family, um Pope bought – Gene Pope bought the New York Enquirer, and he he found a good formula for it. In, it, was, it was actually selling in New Jersey mostly, but he he realized that people would gather around at the scene of a traffic accident. They, they loved the blood and gore. So he started finding um, – Stories, you know, traffic accident stories, yeah. photographs of horrible mutilations and things, and he ran the paper up to about a million circulation. I mean, he had headlines there like "I use my dead baby's face as an ashtray." <laughs> I mean, and as I say, it ran up to about a million. Well, Pope got into some uh, difficulties with the Teamsters Union. Uh, it was it was possibly mob-related, um, and he opted to move out of New Jersey and go down to Florida. And that would be in 71. And he started the paper there as the National Enquirer. Well, he couldn't run these gory stories because one of his genius moves was to put the paper where we know it is today, on the supermarket checkout rack. Yeah. Um, you don't notice that you're paying you know, money for it there, and um, the, uh, everybody goes to the supermarket. They've got to get the groceries. It was a brilliant, brilliant move. So anyway, he couldn't run the couldn't run the ghost stories. So he decided to model the paper on the Reader's Digest, and the Enquirer had about 70 categories of stories. I mean, um, it would be celebrity, occult. You know, and the occult, would be predictions and research into it, and ghosts and. Uh, he had UFOs as a whole separate category how to you know how to be this more creative how to be a better listener how to choose a pet that kind of thing yeah it he helped stories self so you know thrift and medical breakthroughs and oh, government waste and reader post, a whole spectrum of these things we, we actually had a library of stories by category and and the, it was a real-on formula you know that the the writers would go to we'd have okay this week we're going to have Three occult stories, uh, you know, four how-tos, two um, something else's, you know. And they would go into this into this uh, inventory rooms or rooms and pick out the files and then plug those into the paper for the week. The whole system was run in a way that was unbelievable. It was run in an adversarial way. Pope broke the whole staff down into into teams. Yeah. An articles editor, handful of reporters – um, and a common pool of photographers—very few photographers, by the way, just a few—about mm-hmm. 80 reporters and about a dozen editors. But they competed, and every so often they'd send two editors off to the same city. Off, off—you go to Boston for a week, and the one who comes back with the most stories keeps his job. <laughs> um, Friday afternoons, it was very common in the Inquiry. You know, you 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 go down the corridor there, and there'd be little—about four o'clock, be a little group of weeping girls, you know, because. Some of their friends had just been fired or a whole department of twenty five people went once at an hour's notice. Um Yeah, that was some of the
2: amazing stuff too. This this guy Gene Pope sounded like such a character. One story that was in the book here, uh that that I thought was just stunning was how they moved how when they moved from New York to Florida Oh yeah. A bunch of the staff uh well I'll just set you up here. He 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 surprised some of the staff uh when they arrived indeed, at the train station.
0: Indeed, yeah, he, everybody was told to show up to. Well, let me see, would it be Penn, Penn, State, Penn, uh, Penn Station or Grand Union? I can't remember. They were told the whole stuff, and the staff wasn't that big at that stage. Maybe 40, 50 people, and they okay, come down to the station. People sold the houses or they, they ended their leases. They were going to move to Florida. They showed up to the station, and about a third of them weren't going. He didn't get around to telling anybody. He just had his, you know, one of his hitmen, not hitmen, one of his uh, tame executioners, I suppose. No, no, there's no tickets for you. And these people were just left there. They'd they, they got their goods packed. You know, they're in moving trucks, perhaps even on the way. Uh, he was cold, very, very cold, absolutely ruthless, heartless. I mean, he fired, you know, he fired one assistant I knew. he He got a memo, and there's a spelling error in it. And Pope saw it, and he saw the spelling, and he just said, fire the dummy. And that was the guy gone.
1: <laughs> <Unbelievable>. <laughs> I had an email just the other
0: week from a former colleague there, and she said she'd, she'd wandered into the coffee-making room for the staff, and by chance, and unusually, Pope was in there, and she said, oh, Mr. Pope, I didn't know you made your own coffee. And then she went, oh, drat, you know, I've just I've just ended my career here. And she, that afternoon, she rushed to see the new phone list to see if she was still on it because that was the way she knew if she would still be working next week. <laughs> oh, my
2: God. Yeah, it sounds like there was always this – I think you said uh, in the book, you know, like this hatchet hanging over everybody
0: all the time because this guy would just, just fire you Absolutely. on a whim. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. A, a security guy said to him, good evening, Mr. Pope, how are you doing? And he'd be warned not to talk to the boss and he got fired. And the personnel director said to him, he said, well, he said the good evening, Mr. Poe, was okay. He said, it was, how are you doing? Got you fired. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. So I, so that was the man. I mean, we, we basically, and he didn't look like anything. He wandered around in these Sears clothes. He looked like the janitor. He was always adjusting the, uh, you know, the thermostats in the office. And he's come out of his office, which, which of course has had bulletproof glass in the windows and he had his security guys check under the car with mirrors before he left home or before he left the office. He was well aware of his of his mafia connections. Um, I, I often suspected, as did other people, that um, that we were actually a laundry for for uh, for illegal money, because we could spend we could spend anything. Tim, it, it, and now when I think back on it, I think my goodness, why didn't we see that? I've I've had eight hundred dollar dinners, and the company never raised an eyebrow. I mean, not me, just not me personally, not that much of yeah. a pig, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I'd, be, I'd be out entertaining somebody, I'd go out with some, some professor or some researcher, or whoever it was, somebody important to the story, two or three people perhaps, 800 bucks. And uh, if I had a receipt, it was reimbursed. If I didn't have a receipt, it wasn't reimbursed. It was as easy as that.
2: Yeah, yeah. Reading the book and hearing these stories about the money that was spent, my jaw was just like hitting the floor. I think you said at one point, uh, one of the guys you work with, like only ordered on the on the right side of the menu or something. Yes, like Black that. Yes, Black
0: Bob. Yeah, Black Bob Smith. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. When I first went there, um, I I went on uh, uh, as was typical. I went on about a month's tryout. I actually was there for six weeks on tryouts, to mm-hmm. see if if they like me if I like them, and uh we were given you know we were accommodated just you know holiday in type place uh, on the beach just near the office. The office is in Lantana on a uh, beach town in Florida and um we were given an allowance for, for, you know we could charge our breakfast and we could charge our dinners and we were given sort of free reign in the bar, of course, one guy spoiled it after about i'd been there two or three weeks and he spoiled it he was ordering half a dozen bottles of champagne <laughs> and not drinking them in the bar, taking some with him. And so eventually, you know, the accountant said, "Well, no. Well, you, you're limited, guys. You know, <laughs> 20, or, twenty or thirty dollars, you know, for drinks is all right. But we're not, we're not paying four hundred and fifty bucks, you know." Right, right. Um,
2: and this is back in the
0: '70s when thirty or forty bucks 70s, was a lot more yeah. money than it is now. And we were massively well paid. I mean, one of our rewrite girls, a rewrite girl, she'd come from the Palm Beach Post. I love, I mean, she was a friend, a good friend of mine, tennis partner of mine, and all this. Um, was probably the highest-paid journalist in America at the time. Wow. Um, I don't know exactly what she was on, but around hundred and fifty, dollars 180000 Oh, my God. When, when a reporter on a big paper like the Trib, you know, Chicago Trib or, or the New York Times, would be on maybe fifteen to $18,000. She was my on about goodness. 10 times that. Yeah. Well, that's what I found
2: so interesting, too, about, about the Inquirer and, and from reading your book. It was like this was like a massive juggernaut. Of, of money that was spent and, and staff, like you said, 80, 80 people there, uh, 80 okay. reporters. I mean, that's that had to be bigger, if not as big as, you know, all the
0: major newspapers and, and the money spent on these guys and everything. I mean, it's stunning how massive it, it was. Massive yeah, an, it, was. Immense, it was an immense money-making operation for stuff. They are selling 5 million copies a week. <laughs> wow. I mean, now all the tabloids together sell maybe 2 million, all of them together. Uh, probably not even two minutes. Probably one and a half. And you know, uh, the Enquirer, on the, uh, the biggest issue the Enquirer had was uh, Elvis Presley's death, mm-hmm. and they um, they sold 7.2 million that week. So, and, and they had no out, outlay apart from operating expenses. Uh, the, when Pope died, uh, it, it turned out he'd been taking about six million a year out of the paper for his own self. You know, he lived very modestly. didn't travel. He he had, a you know, a nice oceanfront house, but, you know, he drove a, a Caprice, a new Caprice every year. Um, and he drove about three miles to work and back. That was it. His wife drove a little Hausfrau Porsche, you know, a 924, nothing special. Most of the reporters had better cars than, than, than the, the owners. Uh, he didn't have a board or shareholders to answer. It was all his. So the year after he died, the paper was sold off um and the new owners cleared 70 odd million dollars profit the first year <laughs> unbelievable stunning just stunning so that's how much he was ploughing back in
2: yeah um, yeah it's i'm sure it's hard to fathom in some ways for some of the younger listeners out there who see it nowadays and can't imagine what a staple the Enquirer was but it really was just this
0: like i said this juggernaut i mean he, and it was a different paper it was a different paper people liked the thing for quite a long time until Hollywood turned against the paper, um, reasonably enough, I don't totally blame them, because Pope's uh, attitude was that nice is not news when it relates to celebrities. Now, I did celebrity stories, but I didn't do a lot of them, because, as I say, I was focused mostly on, on, on the paranormal. Um, and, uh, I mean, it was literally true that, that reporters, I, I had friends who would literally go to a celeb's house and gather up the garbage on garbage day before the truck got there. <laughs> take it off and go through it. And it actually became a staple of American journalism. They, they'd analyze, you know, the, the garbage of the famous and see what they really were doing. And, you know, we found interesting, We found people, some of these films, you know, they're getting the inquiry every week, you know, because <laughs> we found it in the garbage. <laughs> they were reading it, you know. Um, but anyway, Hollywood turned against the paper. Um, and the reasons were kind of good, social, socially interesting ones. Um, uh, the hollywood what do you call it the, the, the studio system mm-hmm. uh, folded in in the seventies and under that old system uh, a celebrity would make two, three four films a year and um, he was under contract and he earned money but not serious money, but they had a long, long career you know i 'm talking about the, the the john Wayne's and the 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 um, Cary Grants, Grant, yeah. people of that old-school movie-making school. Movie making school. Mm-hmm. Well, they had a cozy relationship with the press. They were they were established. People knew them. They got to see them at the movie house, you know, and they were kind of their family, and it was all cozy. And so all the the, the little um, and large peccadilloes, their the sins were covered up because the reporters knew that these guys were going to be there next week and next month and next year. Right. Well, when it came to, you know, the Julia Roberts time, when she made, you know, 20 million off one movie and then you don't see her around again. Actually, that's a bad example because you do see her around. But when you got to these, you know, these one and two shot stars who made a lot of money in a short time, they knew that they they couldn't afford to have nasty stories circulating about them. So they they got their watchdogs out there and they shut down and they don't deal with the press. They just don't deal with the press anymore. Um right, right. it's very tightly controlled. Far too much at stake for them these days.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then you get things like TMZ and stuff, and, and like these paparazzi that are following them like everywhere. It seems like right, it's it's right. gotten even more intense too. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's true. While we're sort of staying on the eccentricities of of Gene Pove, there were two sort of like great searches that you detail in the book that I thought were just like amazing um, glimpse into the links that he would go
0: for a story. Those were the search for utopia. John Harris. John was a lovely man from North Carolina. Yeah. And he spent, you know, I've I've forgotten the numbers now. I detail the thing in the book because I had to file in front of me then. But John went off on probably a four or five or six month search. He went around the world looking for utopia. And um, he, you know, he filed his report from this place and that place. There was always something wrong with it. You know, there's too much traffic or it, the, the climate wasn't right or – and um, finally he found it. He found this place in the South Pacific and he filed his report. And he'd been through – two editors had been fired or two of his editors had been <laughs> fired while he was on the road. And Maury Breacher was his current editor then. Maury's still around. And Maury, um, you know, went in, Mr. Pope, I think we found utopia. You know, the climate's this, the economy's that. It's perfect. Everything's perfect. Pope read it, and for once he couldn't find a flaw. It was wonderful. And Breacher walked out of Pope's office on a little cloud, you know, and he got back to his desk, and his phone went, and it was Gene Pope, uh, "Mr. Pope wants to see you come back in," kind of thing. You know? uh-huh. And Breacher goes back in, <laughs> and he said, "Hi, ha, he says, "How did, uh, how did Harris get this story?" He said, "But he phoned it over, Mr. Pope. You know, he phoned it in, and my secretary took it. He phoned it. I mean, his phone's there." As far as there, it ain't paradise, he said, not utopia." and he killed the story right there and then John had been around the world for half a year. he spent God knows how many, how much money, you know it, that didn't matter. And, and it was spiked not one mention. Jesus, talk about a dream job in a way though. I mean that was. John huh. said that was probably the ultimate job for any journalist anywhere, you know to go and do that. Yeah, I just sent on in search of paradise, and <laughs> I once took six readers who'd won a ghost contest. To Europe for several weeks. Mm -hmm. So there were six of them, photographer and myself. And I set it up and we we stayed in Hilton's and we we went to the UK first and then to France, Italy and into Germany. And we went to interesting sites and we met interesting people. Three weeks. Do you know how many words got in the paper? 320 and one picture. (laughs) 320 words and it was really, and it was a bland little story, you know, not because it, we'd not done interesting things, because well, it was just a prize, you know, they were doing it and, you know, we went to these I mean, you think now what somebody would do, they'd trumpet that thing uh, what we, look what we do for our readers, <laughs> didn't matter just, just it was nothing, you know
2: Yeah, it was very strange, very, yeah yeah, well, there's some other sort of similar uh, stories like that that, I'm, that I want to get to in a minute, the other uh, great search I wanted to talk about, because it just shed sort of shed some light on Gene Pope in a little bit of a way, and that's that he, he wanted to have the the world's or the country's largest Christmas tree oh, every yeah. year and, and yeah. sent uh, his man there, uh, you know, to, to amazingly great lengths to, to get these, like,
0: 140-foot, Christmas trees and stuff like that That's right, that's right, yeah that, It was a tremendous operation That's a, that's when I do detail in the book that, I mean, I, I think that that story And originally it wasn't even my story It was, you know, I mean It came from Hayden Cameron Who was the guy who, who went on it But, you know, I, I retell it in the book Hayden went off to where I where I am now Actually, in, here in the great green northwest He came around Washington and Oregon Looking for the giant perfect spruce, you know And when they found it, the first one he found was um, uh, the conditions were too dry. They couldn't cut it and and get it out of the woods because it was too dry. And if you drag a tree like that, you cause friction Mm -hmm. and you could cause a forest fire. So they went off and they they, they said, this won't do. So fortunately, the the company secretary who'd come to supervise this business, they sent a rail car to carry this tree 3,000 miles back to headquarters. Uh, he remembered that they they talked to some um, Native Americans on their reservation, and they realized that they wouldn't be bound by federal law, so, you know, you could cut the tree there. So they go along, and these guys say, well, what we'll do is we'll do a rain dance, you see, and that'll, then we'll get the rain, and that'll damp everything down, and be perfectly all right. Well, the old guys have forgotten how to do it. <laughs> so they pocketed the money and disappeared into the woods, and they still didn't have the tree. Anyway, they did find a tree that was going to do the job, And they brought in an enormous amount of equipment. They ended up taking it out with a helicopter, you know, with a big logging helicopter. Yeah. So they lifted it out of the woods so it wouldn't drag on the ground. And then they carried it to its rail car, and then they took the rail car right across the continent. And the the, the preparations for it were just amazing. It had to withstand, you know, um, Beaufort Scale Force 8 gale. So they had this, this concrete bunker built for it with massive, uh, stage and massive wire ropes to hold it in place. And when it was all in, Pope came out and he looked at it and he says, it doesn't look right. <laughs> the low, these big trees don't have the sweeping low branches like your Christmas tree, you know, your six foot Christmas tree. Right. So he went and got more branches, and then a team of Hell's Angels came and nailed them all on. And they were so heavy they had to have hidden wires supporting them. And then the whole thing had to be decorated—100,000, you know, whatever it was, 100,000 lights, 10,000 giant bulbs on it. All this stuff. My God! Yeah, uh, it was an enormous—it was a million-dollar tree every year, and I think it ran for. Was it eleven years? Something like this. It was. He ran for a long time. Yeah, yeah. And you say
2: in the book, like something like four million people over those years came to see this.
0: this oh, every Christmas snowbird thing. in America came down to Florida to see it. The the gardens, because the Enquirer Gardens, are quite, they're, they're you know they're, they're fairly extensive. The grounds, and they were full. I had two small children at the time. You know, I um still got them. They're a bit bigger actually. <laughs> no, um, but the the grounds were just full of uh, of everything: toy trains running around, you know, um, uh, animated characters, you know, uh, animatronic characters, uh, lights. It was a fairyland. It was a sort of I don't know, uh, probably thirty acre fairyland. It seemed like you know, all the grounds were decorated. It took, uh, it took months to get it ready, and. Um, People would come in from everywhere. they come from – you know, somebody – you stop and think about it. It's Christmas time. You know, you're in Michigan, and it's freezing, and and your wife says, why don't we go and look at that big Christmas tree in Florida? Good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's strange because he seems like such a – he seemed like such
2: a cold guy, but then around Christmas time – you know at least uh he has this sort of you know generosity of sorts. He got source.
0: sentimental then yeah, yeah. absolutely sentimental uh, we used to get he, he we used to get um a ham or a turkey you know every every member of the staff was given this it was ridiculous we were very well paid and uh, but you know he had to give us all a ham or a turkey at christmas and one guy was he was in a Mooney cult it was he he infiltrated this cult to report on it and um the office had to know whether he wanted a ham or a turkey for Christmas because Pope said find out. He said they're just saying, well, we'll put both on one side for him. And some assistant there spent like three days getting a secret message to him you know, for the guys in there, and he's going out of his mind, you know, they, they don't let you sleep in those cults. They, they brainwash you. They constantly accompany you. And the guy was going crazy, and finally a secret message comes, you know, he thinks, oh, they're going to get me out of here. <laughs> says, Do you want a hammer or a turkey for Christmas? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh. Wow. But if Pope said it, it had to be that way. That was the end of it. Uh, And it actually reflected in the product, in the paper itself, because um, you have an idea, you know, know, Tim Binnell says, why don't we go and and cover the haunted uh, Ford pickup truck, you know, in in Knob Noster, Missouri or Mm -hmm. something. um, Or he'd say, there's there's a ghost in the truck. There's a ghost in this truck in in Knob Noster and that idea went on to a lead sheet and that lead sheet was approved it was called, first of all there were uh, you know an editor who go through the things and cull it down until he got an, a, you know a, a re, you know the, only the best ones went and then gp would see these pope would see these and um, and pope would approve that one right okay we're, there's a there's a there's a ghost of a man in a pickup truck in right. Obnoster.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: well you know the reporter goes there and he finds there's two ghosts in the thing <laughs> the story would be killed it wasn't what Mr. Pope had approved, right? It was ludicrous. Absolutely, you find a better story, and it's ludicrous. You know? Yeah, yeah. That, nope. that, that was
2: that was an interesting aspect of, of uh, the book. Tabloid Man was just some of the quirks of the way the writing was done there. Because you make a point too that, you know, you were the reporter. You went out and you compiled all this information into like these massive files, and had to get right. as much information as possible. And then they were then these stories were actually written by rewriters who wrote the stories for the tabloids.
0: Yeah. It nearly cost me my job in the first month or two I was there because when I was on my tryout, um, I... I'd been working for the national, national, well, several national newspapers at different times in, in the U.K. And I was sent out immediately, you know, on the road. I spent, you know, three or four weeks on the road. I was in San Francisco, whatever. And I was sending these stories back, and they were the story I'd been sent on, you know, go and talk. I remember one of them, actually, was about the guy who discovered the formula for happiness, you know. And I went and interviewed him in San Francisco. I mean, he was crazy. But um, <laughs> I, I filed a story. And it hadn't run, and I, you know, I, I'm on the road. I don't know what's there. I just see the paper. I think, well, it's going to take two months to get it in or something. I don't know. And uh, my editor was promoted for the third time in a month. It was an expansion time. And the new editor comes, and he, he said, I've got your old files. He said, the crap. Well, I'm sorry? You know, I said, the, what's wrong? He said, well, you know, you've got this. He said, how do we know he's a doctor? I said, well, you know, where did he go? To, where was he trained? I said, well, he was at, you know, such and such a hospital. He did his internship at that one. But you don't say that in the file." I said, well, no, he's a doctor. I just say he's a doctor. No, 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 we don't want that. What they wanted was the guy's age, his shoe size, where he trained, where he did his internship, what degrees he had, what fellowships he was, you know, what things he was a member of. And it was a whole great, big, fat, 2,500-word legal file for a 200-word story. So everything in it was backed up. That was the big phrase. It had to be backed up. How do we know it? It's got to be backed up. And then that file would go to a rewrite guy who'd boil it down to the two hundred words I'd written in the first place. Right. And that's the way it was all the way through until until after Pope's death and then then it went to well, distillation of what this morning's New York Post had to say, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
2: Now was there like a reasoning
0: behind that that, that it was well, that Pope way? Wanted, Pope wanted everything to be accurate. And he employed um, a whole. We had a whole department, a research department that started its life to help the reporters find facts, but very rapidly became kind of a truth squad. And they would literally take your um, take your re- interview tapes. You had to tape interviews. If you every direct quote in the Enquirer had to be on tape and check that it was on the tape. So some poor wretch had to. And there was a team of them doing this. Had to listen to the reporters' interview tapes while they had the, his copy in front of them, and they would put a dot over every word that was in direct quotes to prove that if they heard it on the tape. Yeah. So they'd say this word was definitely on the tape. This, I mean, in the right order, the quote was definitely there, as it was. You know, it was ludicrous. So of course we had to find ways around that because it was crippling. It was, you know, you could you could report a true story. But, you know, it might be the fellow would he'd say, was it really amazing when this happened? And the guy would say, yes. Well, he didn't say, was it really amazing? So what we'd do is we'd write the story and then we'd call the guy and read it back and say, look, this is the story that's going to go in. What do you think? And he said, oh, that's fine. And that was okay on the tape. Well, that was all right until, <laughs> until a couple of freelancers in Los Angeles decided to do a whole series of, of um, celebrity stories that they totally made up and read back on tape to their friends. Well, this couple made something like $300,000 in 18 months in story fees until they got one wrong. It was uh, Tom Selleck having a romance with Victoria Principal, only he was in Hawaii and she was in Germany. It was kind of difficult. And they stumbled on that one, and it all came unglued. Uh, Their their scheme came unglued. Now, you sort of like traced us through how these stories – ended
2: up, you know, being made, how did you, since you were sort of like the paranormal guy, how did you end up getting mixed up into the celebrity wing of things? Did they just come to you with the story and be like, Paul,
0: we need you to go do this, you know? This yeah, obviously, yeah, obviously, obviously, you know, they, I didn't exclusively do uh, stories about the paranormal, you know, I do the occasional crime story or whatever. I mean, I, for instance, I was the first guy out of the States to get to the, the world's worst air crash in, in North Africa, in, in, in Tenerife. Um you know, I heard a friend call me from the UK. I was in home in Florida Sunday afternoon and um within an hour I was on my way to the airport in Miami and I flew to London. I, I cried I cried in line and got my got my way onto a, a full flight to Madrid. Uh and then had to smuggle myself onto a ferry boat to get from um uh, Grand Canary to Tenerife because all, the flights were all closed down and the boat was full and I had to um, I had to do devious things to get on the boat. So on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it took me 28 hours to get there but I was the first person on the station and I was there for a couple of weeks and got tapes of the last eight minutes of conversation between the tower and the jumbos. Now why do you think, I mean, we're talking about how extensive and how you know massive
2: the money was put into the inquiry to get these stories and stuff like that. Why do you think it had got such a bad reputation? Because it would just would publish on anything. It would cover all the strange stories that the mainstream media wouldn't look at, or, or you know, that it covered gossip back before the normal news. It was, yeah, it was,
0: it was gossip and negative stories about celebs. I think that that got it. And then, of course, it came also came back to this attitude of we've got to get the story that was on the lead sheet. So if some clown, you know, puts up an idea that. Drinking eight glasses of orange juice a day um, will cure arthritis. And and Pope approved it. Then it was the reporter's job to go and stand that story up. And what it would do, and, and his editors were all terrified for their jobs, their fat paychecks. Yeah. So they would they would, you know, push to get that. If you didn't get it, you're out. So what, what would happen is that on those, I was really lucky because I was doing paranormal and the stories were weird enough that it didn't, you know, I could report what was there and it was okay. Right. But say that medical story. So some poor reporter would call 30 doctors and say, just drinking all this orange juice, do this. And 29 would say, no way, you're a clown. And the 30 would say, well, it's possible, I suppose, if. And if you could find two who'd say that, you had the story, you had the headline. Well, it became incredible. You know, people aren't stupid, and you know when they get stories like this. Um, uh, even though they on the medical stories, because it, there, was, there were issues, there were issues of responsibility. Um, and the Enquirer actually had all their arthritis stories and all their heart, uh, cardiac type stories. The American Heart Association reviewed every story for a while before it went in, and had the veto power. And because they had the ultimate authority was that they could they tell their members not to cooperate with us, you see. Yeah. And the same for, you know, other medical associations. But when they were running the fantastic stories and people aren't stupid and eventually they, they work it out that, look, this stuff, you know, and we never the, – the, the, the chief editors, the chief editor himself actually um, at the time said, we don't want to confuse the reader with um, arguments. So it was all black and white. It wasn't – well there's an interesting bit of research here that suggests that orange juice cures arthritis it was it does it and that's that <laughs> uh, it's a nonsense it was just a nonsense and that uh, that just undermined the whole thing and eventually the, the whole edifice fell in you know yeah exactly yeah
2: now uh, you know being in the paranormal community for a long time and having looked at all the stories here from the from the era and stuff like that there's a lot of sort of conjecture that gene pope Obviously, he admittedly was involved with the CIA at some point. That that this whole operation was sort of, uh, you know, done at the behest of the CIA to undermine certain stories or to, for a whole bunch of nefarious reasons. So, what what, what do you
0: think of the idea that, that he was, I, yeah, involved, you know, I've, yeah, I've heard those conspiracy theories. I don't give them a lot of credence, to be honest. A pope was Pope um, uh, said he'd been um, in the psychological in a psychological warfare unit. Which, which actually I, could, I found very credible because of the way he treated his stuff. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can't honestly um, think that if you were going to discredit um, uh, you know, research into psychic functioning, that you'd do it through a popular paper. I would have thought you'd get to um, some leading scientists and, and blackmail or bribe them into into submission, you know, yeah. to, um, to falsify their results. It would seem to me to be much more efficient. Because, frankly, convincing a housewife in Kansas City that something's real isn't going to have any political uh, effect, really. But, you see, uh, on the other hand, and I know this personally, that uh, I wrote a book for Gene Dixon, and uh, so... Jean um, and another commercial psychic called Joan Quigley in San Francisco advised presidents. Now Jean was a very shrewd businesswoman, but she was no psychic, and and I don't think that um, Joan Quigley actually would would sort of make um, Obama's uh, you know advisory board, <laughs> you know, as an academic. But you know, in fact, there was a book. What What does Jones say that um, uh, somebody wrote about Nancy Reagan's uh, dependence on on the psychic's advice, which is stunning to me. Yeah. Um, But Jean certainly was close to the White House. She was close to a lot of politicians, and um, she, you know, she she sort of did the crystal ball routine for them, which which is amazing to me that you know but then again we've been blessed with some presidents who are not noted for their intellectual qualities
2: <laughs> that's that's for certain absolutely yeah yeah yeah. Um, yeah well you know to to the inquirer's credit I've also because I, I I was born in 79 so I sort of missed the big right right room right. but but people I've talked to in ufology have often said that some of the best UFO reporting was in the Enquirer in the 70s and 80s. So Yeah,
0: that's no credit to me at all. That's, and to, uh, the, the, the chief reporter of, of UFOs was a, a guy called Bob Pratt, a nice, nice man, actually. Um, he died about three years ago. Um, very determined uh, and diligent reporter. And the Inquirer did carry good UFO stories. I, you know, partly because of that, they they had good ties to MUFON and uh, other. Uh, you know, they they didn't discredit people like you know Jacques Vallee or whoever who yeah. who had the more fantastic stories, um, but they they did carry. Uh, the powerful ones, you know, like the Pascagoula fishermen, and um, uh, I, I, I actually did one in the UK for them, which was pretty, which was pretty, um, uh, pretty well regarded in that field. Although I didn't know it at the time, um, and that was um, uh, what was his name now? Oh, gosh, I can't recall. I, I worked with Edgar Mitchell, you know, um, for mm-hmm. three months. And this is a measure of the inquiry and the way they went into the paranormal. Yeah. They took a, the, uh, the 6 man to walk on the moon um, and the lunar lander pilot, you know, a, a, a re- very, very respected man, Dr. Mitchell as he is, of course. Um, he founded the Institute of Noetic Science in San Francisco. They took him and they hired him as a consultant for three months. And he and I traveled around the states together. You know, we went to the Menninger Foundation. We went to IONS, of course, in San Francisco. Went to various places, and he introduced me to his contacts. Um, I went into DARPA, the Defense Advanced Projects Research Agency in Washington. Got good cooperation, you know. This would have be been in 75, something like this. And so we actually got to things. And Ed told me a wonderful UFO story. Um, he was, uh, he'd gone out to White Sands... Um, where they were preparing to put, you know, uh, a, a rocket up in uh, uh, into orbit, and um, one of the one of his contacts there said, Do "You want to come and look at this?" Ed was in the military. He was, um, I believe, he was a Marine pilot. I'm not sure if it was Marine or Navy. Now, but um, he showed him a film. They'd had a high-speed camera trained on the bird, you know, before it was fired. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody noticed this thing, a frisbee-sized UFO, circling it like a hummingbird going up the length of, of the rocket and had the wit to turn the camera on. So they got some high-speed film of it, which is, you know, just exactly what you'd want. <laughs> yeah. So Ed viewed this and was really impressed. And um, a few days later, he came, you know, he was talking to some, somebody else in the program and said, look, we've got, you, you've got to see this film. It's incredible. And the thing had vanished and never existed. Now, I totally believe, you know, um, a man of his training and integrity and, uh, you know, uh, one of America's heroes, you know, an astronaut. Uh, but it, it just never existed. That film never existed. But he'd seen it. He said, I saw that, and that totally convinced me. So right. there's evidence out there somewhere.
2: You know? Absolutely, yeah. Because that's, <laughs> that's what keeps us all going here, it seems. Um, and you, you talked about the, the trip there with the, with the readers, to do the uh, the ghost tour there in England, and reminded me of the other story in the book, and that's how you spent all this time. and now I, I, I the the name of the country escapes me, but you were covering Hurricane Fifi. Oh, in Honduras, yeah. Yeah, and and spent a long time there, and, and all these different amazing adventures and stuff. And and when you got back, it, you said it took months for oh, one uh, story to be approved in the in the Inquirer.
0: It well, it, well some stories actually, no, no stories got in. They. They had, uh, um, you know, a, a melange, a mishmash, a, a whole collection of stories that – there were two of us, two teams. There was two teams of two, a photographer reporter team. And um, uh, one set, Vince, Vince Eckersley and Bill. Um, Bill, Bill and, um, one team went off to, you know, one part of Honduras and uh, – uh, the photographer, Jeff Joffe, and I were in around Choloma and Tegucigalpa, you know. The, anyway, um, we'd filed, what had happened was this giant hurricane came in off the Caribbean, went right across the peninsula, right across the landmass and into the Pacific. Um, it killed about 12,000 people. They really don't know. <laughs> uh, but it hit the hardwood in the mountains and knocked all these giant trees down, they all came down in the floods, and the Hondurans had recently built a chain, a new road with about 17 bridges up along the coast. Well, all these logs formed a whole series of dams, backed up the rivers, and then one by one the bridges blew, and anything on the ocean side uh, you know, was swept away. So, we were doing stories. I mean, I went into a place called Chaloma, you know, and the thing was nine feet deep in, in silt. Yeah. Huh. Houses were just there. What houses were left? Because, you know, if you get a, a big hardwood tree, hits it in a flood, you know, 20 miles an hour, it's, it's gone. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm doing all these, and one of the stories I came across was a youth who'd been on the roof of his house. This this massive wood and, and mud and flood and stones came down, and... Somehow, he got hold of a log and was swept out of sight of the mountains. He was swept at least 15 miles into the sea. Fluke of the current brought him back in within a few miles. Um, and he, he was out for a couple of days. And some people out there, you know, fishermen or somebody out sorting through the debris, found him alive and brought him back. Well, it's a tremendous story, you know, I mean... This guy has survived being, you know, smashed to death and eaten by sharks and yeah. drowned and out of sight of the land. I mean, that's a long way out. And I filed a story, and um, Gene Pope saw it and said, this isn't a hurricane story. This is a lost-at-sea story, and he killed it. <laughs> it didn't fit the formula. But they couldn't get a, they couldn't find an intro for their, the whole story. You know, they, were, they wanted to run sort of three or four pages in the paper and they couldn't find an introductory paragraph that pleased him and it took about 5 months before they found one and when at the end of it it was it was so tame and i remember it, it was death rode the slopes to chaloma <laughs>
2: <laughs> it felt like a ski film you know yeah yeah well it's just amazing to contrast that story with what we see today you know I mean, I mean this is a disaster on par with with stuff that we're seeing nowadays and and now you see you know cnn or somebody fly somebody out there and they can do 24 7 coverage it's like right, right. To, to see the, what this, this type of material you were procuring and then hey, to hear that it took months just to get it out there is yeah, is stunning to think about the difference in in how things have changed
0: yeah indeed indeed um but it was, you know, it was. Um, he thought nothing of sending sending anywhere in the world, and uh, that's what it was. You know, that's that's what you did. It was. Uh, they were good, good stories, good meaty stories. And in that case, actually, probably the delay didn't matter because you, there'd probably be very little coverage of a Honduran hurricane anyway in the North American press. Yeah. Yeah. So you guys so it was were just, human, good human stories, you know. That that's what that's uh, you know that, that was selling the paper. Exactly. Yeah. Now, did
2: you obviously this guy's reputation like loomed over the whole office and everything? But how much personal interaction did you have with Gene Pope? Like, you know, did you run into him a lot, or was it sort of like few and far between?
0: Your your meeting? no. He knew who we were. He knew his reporter. I was a senior reporter. There were about eighty reporters, and six of us were senior. Oh, okay um which was a, a a pay scale thing as much as anything <laughs> but um so he knew who i was i mean no he was he and i actually in a, a sneaking sort of way i kind of liked the guy and as a for instance um he i went into a restaurant you know in in um, point and beach or somewhere where we were living and he i with my wife and we were sitting there and, and he and his wife ca- came in and he kind of noticed me and didn't didn't do anything, didn't acknowledge or anything, you know. And I thought, oh, good, okay, he's not recognizing me. I'm safe. And two minutes later, there's a bottle of wine on my table, you know. He'd send it over. So, you know, he wasn't. Enti- I mean, he let his dog eat off his plate, you know. Yeah. But he'd fire he'd, he'd fire the gardener if the grass was more than three inches high because that's what he said it had to be. Yeah, yeah. Just a fascinating guy. I mean, a, absolutely complex man. Um, uh, and a very, you know, single-minded, very purposeful person. And because he had this vision of what he wanted in his paper, there was nobody to argue with him. He didn't – you know what they say to him? They say that, that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. Mm-hmm. Well, he knew what he wanted, and there was no committee involved. Right. And And what he wanted is what he got. And that's why the paper did so well. You know, it was a great uh, – uh, the product was, you know, what he wanted. He wanted it to be an interesting product. We used to carry about 80 stories a week in there. Oh, wow. So actually – actually, here's that shameless plug, but I, I have about 85 stories in Tabloid Man. hmm And that would be – and they're written a little bit longer, but that would be about the content. Well, they're written a lot longer, actually, thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. 80,000, 85,000 words in there, but they're written longer. But that would be – those stories written shorter would be one week's Enquirer. So you stop and think about that for your 35 cents. You know, it's a good deal. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the is 35 cents. <laughs> yeah, back then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, it, and people liked it. I mean, I I got I, – I, I walked into um, – the, the You know, uh, Rosalind, uh, not Rosalind Carter's, um, Jimmy Carter's sister's house, you know, in uh, just outside Plains. And, um, you know, she's sitting there playing cards with Miss Lillian, and she introduced me. She said, oh, here's Paul. He's from the Enquirer. And, and Miss Lillian goes, oh, hi, how are you doing? they You know, we it was acceptable, you know, enough to be from the Enquirer for a while. Unless you're a Sally Field, right? <laughs> I'll tell the story. Um, <laughs> if you, you've seen Sally Field in, in Mrs. Doubtfire when she's raging at her husband, well, I've seen the real thing. <laughs> um, some some idiot some idiot Enquirer editor sent me to. They, she was having a romance with Burt Reynolds, and they said, "Go and find her and get her to tell all about her romance," as if you know, as if that's going to happen. So I go and find her house, and it, it was in Hollywood. And it was actually up for sale. And as I'm sitting there in the car, you know, the gates open and Sally drives in with her two kids. She just brought them home from school. So I walk through the gates. You know, it's you know, all right. And a um, maid comes to the door and I said, uh, "I see that the property is for sale." And she said, "Just, a minute, I'll just, a minute, I'll go and get the You know. <laughs> so Sally comes out all smiles and charm. She's only tiny, you know. She's like five foot one or something. She comes out all smiles and absolutely oozing charm and. Uh, I said, "Um, "This is a very nice house, and you've got it for sale." Yes, come in, come in. I'm in there with her. I said, "I'm not actually here to buy the house." I said, "I I was here to ask you about your relationship with Mr. Reynolds." (laughs) And actually, I do believe levitation's real because she did it. (laughs) (laughs) She was pure. She was bouncing up and down next to me. But um, i actually I've got um, my credentials. I. on assignment, i have been menaced by a ghost, i have been shot at by a gunman, Michael Jackson endangered me, I was kicked out of course by Gidget, Sally Field, a kangaroo spat on me I was, and i would been threatened by Tony Curtis, George Best, the French police, the Salvadorian military, Bob Hope's daughter, Stephanie Powers' his brother, John Bernay Ramsey's neighbors, a hitman in New Jersey, um, oh gosh. Princess Caroline's bodyguards. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's it's amazing. Just
0: to, yeah. Like yeah. I said, you,
2: you've had an amazing they life. Chase, they chased me down. <laughs> oh, dear God.
0: But you made um, it through it. You made it through it all right. Yeah, so. yeah, I still got the scars. <laughs> <laughs> well, I played rugby for a long time, so I'm all right. There you go. Um, um,
2: now, you, you talked about how huge the Elvis issue was. I, I thought it was amazing the just, like, to go back to sort of like the way things have changed and how how around-the-clock the news is, it sound like, you know, when, when Elvis died, I think you said they spent $75,000 on reporting on this and, and flew a yeah, ton be, of people yeah. out there, rented out a whole floor of a hotel, had Winnebago's on standby in case he lost the right, hotel right, rooms. Right. It was amazing.
0: Right. Yeah, and actually all that logistics takes stuff. I, I One thing I'll say for the stuff is Pope did not employ incompetence. The people who worked for the Enquirer were some of the best journalists in America, and of course from Britain they had a lot of Brits. He recruited Brits because um, uh, the British newspaper industry was extremely competitive, um, and still is actually. Mm-hmm. There'd be a dozen or so morning papers in every city. Oh wow! Well, the place is small. It's only, Britain's on only the size of California. Yeah. And all the so a national newspaper. Goes everywhere, so you've got half a dozen national newspapers, a couple of regional ones, and a local one, or maybe even two, in every city. So you know you can have a dozen morning papers on your table if you want them. Um, actually, it's slightly fewer now, but it's still there's still plenty there, you know. And that's in addition to TV and so on, because of you know the geography, you can actually print the thing in in one or two printing centres and stick it on trains, and it's on your breakfast table. Ah, uh, no yeah, problem. that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean the, the distribution problems in the states are horrendous you know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't consider that to, to you said yeah. that. Yeah.
2: So, yeah, I mean I'm just amazed at how how much they spent on on that st- that story when Elvis died. And obviously it generated as you said 7.2 issues uh, 7, 7.2, 7.2, 7.2 million, million yeah. issues
0: yeah. sold. Yeah. So it's like yeah. it yeah, it was a good something. return a good return on it. There's a nice little side story after the Elvis thing because um Pope, you know, enjoyed the big sale. So he said, well, why don't, you know, somebody, we need another Elvis story. So somebody came up with the idea of getting Priscilla Presley um, to pray alongside the grave in Graceland, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, a good friend of mine, Vince Eckersley, was an Enquirer photographer. And uh, so he bought himself a shiny black suit and a dog collar. And then he got himself um, uh, a missile, you know, a big, a great big, a great big Bible or a missile. I think probably a missile for authenticity. Hollowed it out, and he put a little Leica camera into it with a remote trigger. You see? Yeah. And the idea was he was going to go in there disguised as a priest, and Priscilla would kneel down by the grave, and he'd kneel on the other side of the grave and take pictures of her praying for Elvis. <laughs> so it was, it was going to be another nice picture, you know, good picture. Well. She got cold feet, and they never actually did the job but he 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 went up to he went to um uh, you know to, to Memphis and um was uh, hung around for about a week in a motel waiting for her to you know warm her feet up to do it. They were paying her to do it yeah and um she she never did but while he's waiting, Bing Crosby, who was um in Spain had died um, and uh, he gets so Vince gets a call to go to uh, l a because they're bringing uh, Bing back to be buried you see. so he goes to the church I think it was in Westwood and um, the night before the service and they held a service early in the morning so there'd be no crowds and they didn't really to, they didn't advertise it of course. and so Vince goes the night before and he removes this diamond-shaped pane of glass from the church window and he gets a long lens and has a convenient you know uh, box to stand on to get a picture when they put the coffin there at the, you know the, at the head of the aisle at the nave. And um, so he gets his picture in the morning, and then he goes inside, because he's dressed as a priest, you see? Yeah. And he's got his little concealed camera. And he's kneeling at the back, just loading some more film, and a great big bearded priest comes striding down the aisle towards him. And, oh, gosh, I've been rumbled, you know. (laughs) And he looks up, and it's Frank Zahor, another Enquirer reporter, (laughs) dressed as a priest. (laughs) So so Vince kind of, you know, they, they bless each other and Vince does his job, and he goes to the door, and um, the funeral director's keeping the press out, and this is Jerry Hunt, who's another inquiry reporter. <laughs> so anyway, Zahor takes his dog collar off, and he goes down to the, the graveside, you know. Oh, as he's leaving the church, still dressed as a priest, rather, he's stopped by one of the reporters from one of the LA papers and says, um, who's the officiating priest, and Frank says, you know, says his name, you know, his father's Stralewski or whatever, and, and he said, how do you spell that? And he spells it, and he says, but my son, he says, check it, check it. And then Frank told me, he said, I went down to the graveside, and by this time I'm back into Mufti, and I got my, I got my dog collar off and everything. And this reporter looks across at me, and he, here's Frank with a tape recorder and a notebook, and he's going, what's going on, you know? <laughs> Frank says, it's a bit of freelance activity now. Yeah. <laughs>
2: oh, man. So things happened just
0: unbelievable. Now, but, you know, people hear these
2: stories here, especially, you know, a lot of the stories that you covered in the book, uh, these paranormal stories, and they weren't, these weren't really like, like, you know, um, fluff pieces. Like, a lot, of, a lot of the stuff you investigated was remarkably chilling, remarkably paranormal. I mean, this wasn't just hoaxes or fakes or, or, or you know,
0: or yeah. trickery. I mean, you, you, you oh. really investigate some strange things there. The The, the most... The most important stories, um, actually, were things like the um, the Stanford Research Institute and their remote viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a couple of years working not uh, nonstop, of course, but I was in contact with Russell Targ and Hal Puthoff. And these, these are not lightweight researchers. You know, Puthoff was a, a, a full professor at Stanford University, and, um, and Targ is a laser physicist. And they worked with Uri Geller. Um, for, that's how they started it. You know, they were investigating Geller's abilities. And they were, they were working for the Stanford Research Institute, or as it became now, SRI International. Mm-hmm. And they got a $1.1 $1. $1 million annual um, uh, stipend from the CIA that ran for nine years. So it was a $10 million contract to investigate remote viewing. Well, actually, that contra- when it expired there with them, I found out since the contract ran for 20 years and for 25 million in total, and that's what the spooks were spending to try and train psychic spies, and they had tremendous success. And now they, the story that's going around is that you know the the the, uh, the results were um, indecisive, and they abandoned it all and all the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> but they they I tell stories in there about when. You know you know all about remote viewing, but I'm sure there's one or two listeners who, who might want it clarified. What they would do is, um, in the later stages, is they would have a, a talented remote viewer, who could be an ordinary person, actually, who, had, who knew enough to relax the mind kind of thing. Um, they found it was important to assure that um, the, the test subject, it was okay to succeed. They said this was absolutely key, they found out. Um, and then they say, "Okay, we want you to send your mind to these map coordinates somewhere in the world, and tell us what you see there." And they give him a set of coordinates. Now, the best geographer in the world couldn't couldn't do this, you know. When you get latitude, longitude, and you know, down to minutes of, of latitude. Yeah. And what they try and do is find, say, a small lake in a in a in a continent or a small island in an ocean. And in one instance, one story um, that um, impressed me a lot. I think it was Ingo Swan was the psychic, and he, he, he was uh, He was given these coordinates of the French Antarctic island of Kerguelen and he went there and he described, you know, the wind and the grasses and all this kind of thing. But then they liked artists to be these subjects, and and he sketched the island and he accurately put in, you know, where everything was—the mountain and the airstrip and the one small habitation. The, the French had a meteorological station. On the um, on the island, and he described it, and he got the shape of the island right, and the elevation, and the, the you know the the disposition of the buildings, all this stuff. But there was one thing that puzzled him, um, and he reported it, but he couldn't work out what it was. Um, and it was a, a long, it was a long orange, was it orange um, uh, blob colour, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they couldn't, just couldn't get it. They didn't know what it was. Doing some of this from memory, of course. But anyway, he reported it. So when, when they had his report in, he's sitting in this lab, you know, in, in Palo Alto, and he sent his mind 8,000 miles away around the world. And um, then Targan put off contact the authorities in Kegalan and said, We've, you know, um, can you verify this? And they said, yeah, that's really our island, and that's how things are, and there are huts are there. There's the missing hut, there's the airstrip. So what's this orange thing? Well, no, that's not here. No, we don't have that. So they—when was this done? So they gave them the date and time, and and the French came back and said, actually, it was here then. For three days, they'd been drying. They'd been, they'd been expecting some particular storm, and they'd covered up some met equipment with a tarp, and that's what—it uh, was the right shape, colour, and size. <laughs> so for three days, this tarp had been on. You know, this equipment had been had been protected. And in that time, Swan had actually seen it and described it. That's pretty impressive. You know, I, you think, well, that means it's contemporary. He's actually doing it. It's not that he could have cheated somehow and, you know, looked in an atlas.
2: Right, right, right. Those are the sort of like little things, little details that yeah. lend credence to this whole thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Look, Todd... I know
2: you're a big conspiracy theorist, okay? And you believe everything, man. Dude, Not you're true. so naive, man. There are no aliens in Roswell, and contact lenses aren't made out of amoebas. They are, they too, are, dude. dude. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Wait, hey, did you see that? What? Chupacabra. He just ran down the aisle, Todd. You better find him. Now, you made a good point in the book, too, uh, You know, as a reporter, that it's it's important to listen and ask questions. I thought that was, you know, it sounds so simple, but in reality, it
0: really isn't. Well, you won't know what the story is. If uh, My trouble is I talk a lot. <laughs> so I, I've got to, you know, I've got to shut up and let people get in. I mean, right now I'm on the receiving end of that. But, um, yeah, you, you really do have to go. And, and it's remarkable what comes out if you actually pay attention to people and, and just listen to them, let them talk. Mhm um there's all kinds of things I'm I'm scrambling now of course for an example but um there's there's all kinds of things that will emerge if if you let people tell you about them right right
2: people i think just want you know they want to know that you care they want to you know to to find somebody that wants to listen to them even if it's some mundane thing i think you said that you know, you'll learn that there's seven different types of wool, or something like that. And, and oh yes, yeah. They know, range from fair to middling fair. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if if somebody, I find that it, you know, even just talking to random strangers, not guests on the show, but you know, if somebody, if you express an interest in what they do, it, it, they can light up if
0: they're not. It's it's the joy, it's, Tim. It's the joy of our jobs. We, we get to talk to people who are experts in their, own, in their own area. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, how paint adheres to a wall. If they're an expert on it, they will make that interesting to you. Mm-hmm. Now, I had an occasion when I, I didn't pay attention to somebody, and it was a, a pretty spooky episode. Um, I'd gone down to um, uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, to do some stories down there, um, and uh, I came across a, 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 a poltergeist um, attack that was going on in, in a nearby town, which is called Moji das Cruces. So I went out there, and I don't speak any Portuguese, and I had an interpreter with me. And um, this family had been kind of under siege. Now um, I, you, you know, um, but I didn't, that in in Brazil, um, witchcraft is is very commonplace. It's, it's it seemed like every street corner seemed to have a little shop that sold you dried lizards and things, you know, yeah. that people would use. So um, I went to Moji and. Um, i They told me that even the police chief had seen this. So I went to see him. it was It was a terrifying experience actually the, the The police chief place it was oh gosh, it was a really scary, scary building uh you You thought you were going to get banged up there and never come out. <laughs> anyway. He said that he'd gone to this house um and on a blank plaster wall, flames were appearing. And he realized that there was no heat from them, and he went up to them, and they were just at the illusion of flames out of, the, out of this wall. And he, he said he'd even put a banknote up in among them, and of course it didn't burn. Um, and he'd witnessed this. Anyway, I went to the house, and things were going on there. In fact, one incident was, while I was about five or six feet away from it, the, the back of this small sofa, it was an imitation plastic, you know, imitation leather sofa, three uh, gouge marks opened up in it; just split, three splits, as if somebody had clawed it. Huh. Just, just right next to me. I mean, I tell you this, and you, you're going to say, "Well, you know, you were wrong," but I saw it, and it happened. And that's the very, that's very convincing to, to me, anyway. Yeah. So now I saw this, and things were going on. Well, the family over the next day or two, they they hired um, a witch doctor, a Macumbera of their own, uh, to take off this hex that had been put on them. And um, he was. Apparently quite successful, and things quieted down. And um, my interpreter says, "Look, you know we should really go and see the guy, and you know you talk to him, and well, you know, at the end of the day, I was hot, I was thirsty. I had about two or three days on this thing, and I was really ready to pull out and get back to Florida. and I said, no i said he's he's not going to add any credibility that I need a scientist or somebody, you know." We, we venerate people we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, but it had to look credible. And uh, I, I figured a guy in feathers and bones wasn't going to add anything to the story. So I just ignored it. Well, that night I was in Sao Paulo and I went out for my dinner. Well, actually, I had dinner in the hotel and um, it was a, a chicken pot pie I was eating. And as I'm eating, I get this crunch and I pull out a little cube of glass out of my food. And it was... You know, when you shatter a windshield, you know, you, you get these little tiny bits of tempered glass. And yeah. It was like that, just a little cube. So I'm very indignant, and the manager assures me, you know, they didn't make it on the premises. They brought it. It wasn't their fault, and have a free dinner and all this stuff. And, and okay, pass on. Well, the next night, I was back in Rio de Janeiro, and I was flying out of there the next morning. Um, and... Uh, I, I was in a bar. I went in this... Again, it was a hotel bar, an ice bar, and I was having a mixed drink and a piece of glass in my drink in among the ice. Well, my glass wasn't chipped. The barman was very apologetic. He showed me this kind of rubber thing that they had that twirled that they cleaned the glasses with. It couldn't have been chipped, but they didn't know how to come about. It was very sorry to have a free drink, you know. Mm-hmm. Didn't think to... Okay. The next night, third night, 24-hour cycle in between each. Not exact, but close. Um... I'm thirsty and I went to the fridge in my house and I I don't often drink sodas, but I was thirsty and I went and there was a Coke in there and i take a Coke out and, and I did something I don't normally do, maybe subconsciously I knew, and I opened it and poured it into a glass and clink, there's that Cuba glass again for the third time. And all I can think is that that Macumbera sent me a message. He didn't harm me, he didn't scare me. He just said, Come and listen to me. You should have paid me a bit more respect. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm not. It, it all happened just as I told you, and there's no point saying it did when it did. You know, when it didn't. That's just exactly what happened. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Impressive, it was an impressive message, anyway. <laughs>
2: Now, another whole, like, section in the book is it deals with uh, how the Inquirer and the tabloids covered politics and and the presidents. And and I thought it was interesting, you know, they just really do develop some strange stories that rely on sort of shadowy sources that, you know, as long as you can get a source off the, you know, anonymously, although you guys have to tell the editor who it is, you know.
0: Sometimes, um, sometimes not even that. <laughs> what you've done now is you've jumped forward to the modern tabloid, and you're right to because people need to know. But, yes, yeah, what they do now is they, they look uh, – in fact, now the, the, the tabs are a shadow of themselves. They, I think the Inquirer's got um, about three or four staff reporters, and that's it. They've got oh, know, wow. two guys in Florida and two or three in L.A., and that's it. Um, they have no money. Um, I was freelancing for them and uh, for the Inquirer and Globe and Star until – Two or three years ago. In fact, the last story I did was um, <laughs> Obama. It, it would be where are we now? Gina? It would be just just a little bit more than two years ago about Obama and his birth certificate. And <laughs> they're still running the story. Yeah, um, I went to they they sent me to Hawaii and LA and so on to dig for um, any dirt we could find on him, and uh, that was some, one of the stories that came up. Yeah, he said it sounded like Obama. That this, that you know, his
2: whole background had pretty much been scrubbed, leading into you know him yeah. running for president, because uh, you
0: yeah. guys couldn't really get anything. It's Standard operating procedure, actually, these days. You know, if you they they make sure that if you've got anything in your background, it's either redacted, you know, so it's not available to anybody else, or you cough it up. You know, you don't want it to be brought up at an embarrassing time, and. Um, Uh, Obama cleaned everything, but he'd had people in there about 10 months before I got there. I'm talking 2007 when this first started. Yes. And um, everything had been cleaned up. You know, uh, even down to his half-sister, Satoru, she was no longer listed at at the university where she worked. She was no longer on the list. So you couldn't email her. I mean, it was he'd taken everything, everything off. I'm just trying to think where where you even start. He he um he took off his um birth records, kindergarten records, there's records at Punahou School, then he went to Occidental College in Columbia, they all vanished, as did his thesis. His Harvard Law School records have gone. The the law review pieces he did and and he did scholarly stuff for the University of Chicago, went his passport, med medical records even, you know, files from his years as a state senator in Illinois and, and uh, as a member of the state bar there, they all went. And actually, this probably is one of the few conspiracy theories that has a, some legs. Why would he, he – when, when I did it, he'd spent 600000 on five different law firms to keep this stuff quiet. And when Trump was making all his noise a few weeks ago, he claimed that Obama was now up to $2 million in legal fees. But why would you do all that? And I'm, this is purely a guess, uh, because nobody knows yet. <laughs> I think he probably had dual citizenship at some stage. His father was Kenyan, and his mother was, as everybody knows, Kansas girl. Yeah. And he actually went to Pakistan. Obama went to Pakistan in 81, when it was a, very difficult for any, any American to travel there. Now, if he'd had a passport from a Muslim country like Kenya, he would have been much more welcome. Um, so I, maybe that dual citizenship would have shown up when he applied for college or, you know, yeah. uh, or the bar or whatever. Interesting. And maybe that's an embarrassment.
2: Yeah, interesting. I never even had considered that, but, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. What I thought was interesting, too, was that you said – that during the election, uh, that you did come across sort of this scandalous story involving John McCain, and and that it event yeah. that, that it never got printed, and you said, "Uh, and this is a quote here from the book." Given a real scandal, the tabs didn't know what to do with it. I thought that That's was right. really interesting. That you know, here they yeah. were trying to dig up, you know, gay affairs for Obama and oh, uh, yeah, crazy yeah, stuff. Yeah, with and, that and,
0: Sinclair bloke, that Larry Sinclair guy, yeah, totally, a totally an unbelievable. Truly incredible, and you know they had this—they had this thing with McCain, John McCain, uh, who who was touting family values and and saying how you know um, how uh, how much joy he'd had, he and Cindy had, had as adoptive parents. I think he said something like they knew what a treasure and joy it was to have an adopted child, but they actually booted out this young girl that they were adopting and left her to a life of drugs crime and hardship you know and now it, 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 uh, i'm talking about bridget McC- mccain a girl who even changed her name during the adoption process and then got into an argument with them um with cindy cindy's got you know um uh, some emotional roller coaster that she was riding at the time she was a uh, she was abusing uh, substances and that's not a secret but they pushed the thing into a dark corner you know, uh, uh, he's advocating adoption, and then he can't make one work for himself. Um, but the, the tabs, they I don't think they did it from any particular political reason. I think there's just incompetence. You know, it's one of those things, well, it's not selling as well as, you know, Bush is drunk every night, and um, Laura's, you know, moving out and staying in a hotel. Right, right. Wish she did a couple of times, but, you know. Well,
2: it's interesting, too, that, you know, a lot of this stuff, especially the the celebrity gossip and even the political gossip and stuff like that, I mean, that stuff's gone mainstream now. I
0: mean, it's, you don't it's need horrible. to get it's really it. horrible. Yeah. I mean, I wonder how many people really, really care, you know, about um, uh, some, some you know, Pop-Tarts uh, romances. It seems like a lot of people, unfortunately. <laughs> Do you think so? Do you think so, Tim? I mean...
2: Uh, you know, I don't know. It's... They're not
0: buying the paper. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that's true. They're that's walking. True. They're, you know, they're voting with their feet. So maybe that's. I don't know. It. it I mean, there are certain. Things. I think what it is is because the the, the tabloids are, are down to such um, uh, you know low levels of staffing and financing. They can't afford freelancers anymore. Right. Um, but because of, because of that, they're, they're the few people who are operating them are pretty much exhausted. I suppose that's that might be a factor. You know, they can't be creative forever.
2: Right, right. Now I think you see too, you know, some of these magazines like Us Weekly and stuff, like, you know, it seems like it, instead of this adversarial relationship, like what happened with the Inquirer and the celebrities, now it's – they sort of work together. You're right,
0: you're right. Yeah, so you they, they do. They're, they're – um, you know, they'll promote the celebrity's latest fashion line, you know, that kind of thing. They, they're they buying their way in. Right. It, 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 um, because the, the, the celebs have closed the door on them. That's what it is. They, they don't want any – any coverage from, from that they can't control. Um, Obama was very smart during his election campaign. I, I admire Obama, to be honest, and, but he was very smart during his election campaign. They didn't put him up for um, uh, press conferences. They issued their sound bites. They controlled what the press could do. Yeah. So it wasn't well. You know, you can uh, you can put your own spin on it. Um, the Bush campaign learned a lot from that, I think.
2: Well, you know, you, you see, it's a, it's just a different world, too, in a way. And you, you hear this just about journalism in general now, where it's like, you know, instead of going out and getting the story, a lot of times the journalists are being told the story. Yeah. yeah. And then they report what they're told. And, you know, somewhere the truth gets lost in the mix.
0: It's easier and cheaper to, uh, you know, to just take a press release and and rewrite it than it is to go and dig around and have people really ticked off at you and, you know, maybe lose... And, you know, when when you're struggling to survive, as the papers are, print media's really in desperate straits.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, they're going to take the line of least resistance. They're not going to um, alienate the, you know, the sources they've got because where do we get next week's stories? You know? It's it's, it's vicious. And, and, of course, they're not um, not supported by the readers. You know, the reader's don't really seem to want um, the depth of reporting because they don't support the the media that gives it to them exactly yeah I mean I don't know if you if you've ever read the there's a British uh magazine called The Economist does really good in depth stuff nobody's ever heard of it but it, it's it's a great read you know yeah. Yeah, not as good as baffling, you know, the baffling chair of death stuff, but um <laughs> but it it gives you in depth, you know, on on the politics in Pakistan or, or you know what really is happening with the Afghan drug trade. Um that they don't make the evening news here. The, the, this is more, you know, what Elizabeth Taylor's funeral plans were, you know. Yeah, what Charlie Sheen's doing nowadays, right? Yeah, I, I couldn't believe that week after week of, you know, a, a train wreck. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like it like like
2: I was kind of saying too, you know, it's like back in the day that sort of stuff didn't get on TV or in the mainstream papers. It was just it you had to go to the Enquirer and in mag- tabloids yeah. like that yeah. to get that story. And now everybody, you know, everything's yeah.
0: become like the National Enquirer in a way. And people uh, the thing is that the um, the the tabloids particularly have suffered from celebrity television because people regard celebs as part of the extended family. And um they get their satisfaction, you know, they'll see a little bit on entertainment tonight, they'll see a tiny bit, a, a 15-second bite, and the the show will tell you what they're going to tell you, they'll show it to you, they'll tell you what they told you, and they'll do it again. <laughs> and you go, well, where was the meat and all that? It was all sizzling, there was not much steak there. Um, I don't know, but it, it get, fulfills people's desires to see the family members, as it were, you know, they want to see Charlie, you know, how he's, how the bad, you know, the bad guys doing? Yeah. Now you you did
2: have a lot of interaction with celebrities. Was there any in particular that to you? Like your favorite ones to interact with? I
0: thought the Tanya Harding stuff was particularly. Like, I like Tonya. Revealing, yeah, you know. I like Tonya. Yeah. Um, she was nice. My fa- actually, my favorite celeb of all of them is is um, Dan Haggerty, who played Grizzly Adams back in the day. I mean, Dan's a rogue, and and he's had a very colorful, shall we say, past. But um, he's, a, he's a nice, genuine guy and very talented, actually. He's an artist and, you know, sculptor and all this stuff. Um, there's a funny story that, he, that, that happened. He, we, he, he was filming up in um, uh, Lake Louise there in Canada, and I was up there. And, um, he had to do this. Dan's an animal trainer, and um, he had to do a scene on a frozen lake with a Siberian tiger where the tiger was supposed to come and attack this... I don't know what kind of a warrior he was. He was covered in furs, anyway. <laughs> he was supposed to be some primitive warrior. You know, this tiger runs out of the woods and grabs Dan and wrestles with him, mm-hmm. which was going to work fine. So to keep it authentic, uh, or convincing at least, the, um, the film crew were all hidden just inside the tree line, um, and they filmed it from three or four spots, you see. And uh, Dan's out in the lake, and they release the tiger. So anyway, that night we're all in the um, in the hotel, you know, in the bar in the hotel, and there was a whole lot of women in there. We, they, they were members of a. They call it the Bitch and Stitch Club, and they were having a, you know, their um, their stampish their meeting. And um, one of these women got talking to us and and said to Dan, uh, what are you doing?" And he said, "Well, we're filming on this lake here near here," and mentioned the name. And she said, "Oh, my husband was there today. He was ice fishing." She said. He came home absolutely white and shaken, said, what happened? Well, he'd been smoking dope, and he said <laughs> he was never going to do it again because he'd started hallucinating about the Siberian tiger, and the, he, he'd had a flashback in time. <laughs> 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 she said, I'm not going to tell him. Dan explained what had gone on. We were killing ourselves laughing. She said, she, she said I'm not going to tell him. He could stop smoking that stuff for a while. <laughs>
2: One of the stories in the book that I thought was really amazing, to go back to the, sort of the paranormal realm so I don't get too many uh, nasty emails, <laughs> um, was uh, this story of Howard Starkle and uh, his his abilities here that uh, I guess are classified under the term psychometry. So I guess talk a little bit about that and, and you know, what you gleaned from this guy's amazing abilities. Because this was some stunning stuff. Like, we, as you get into the story and you're reading more about it, you just keep... Getting further and further into it, and you're like, this is,
0: you know, this this can't be denied. This is stunning no, stuff. No, no. There's a federal researcher, his name's Neil Mangan, Dr. Neil Mangan. He, he, he was a chief historian at the Custer Battlefield National Monument. And um, he'd heard about this man from Raleigh in North Carolina, Howard Starkel, and um, decided to sort of call him in to see if he could help. Starkel. Says that he watches a mental TV screen when he handles clothing or weapons or artifacts from from a scene. In this case, you know the the, the battlefield. Um, uh, it was uh, at um, at the Custer battlefield, and um, he gets pictures of what happened to the owners of those artifacts. He was given, for instance, he was given an iron spur that um, Mangum had uh, dug out. Mm-hmm. And uh, he described a big man, and he said he was someone – now, this, all, all this material is, is recorded and transcribed. So, you know, it's not I'm making it up. This is something that, that you know, that, the, that this historian was so impressed with that it, it came to me eventually. Yeah. So he described a big man. He said someone in medicine who was wounded in the foot and was struggling to climb a hill with a small group of cavalrymen. And Starkov described the man as uh, his thoughts. He said, I saw the Indians killing our horses by the stream. He said, our group of soldiers wasn't the main group with Custer. The Indians killed some of us then backed away. They they set fire to the grass around us as they left. He said, I was hatless, you know, without his hat. I was hurting and in a panic. I lost my spur below the ridge. And then he goes to the present tense. He said, my boot is full of blood. It, it's hard, struggling up the hill. There's an Indian with a big bullseye painted on his chest. He's on horseback and he's riding me down. At any second, I might be cut down. He said, I shoot at him, but there's a crushing pain in my chest, and I know I'm mortally hit. I'm dying now. The noise seems very far away. So, okay, I said, well, what's the, what's the real story? So the historian says, it happened. He said, the spur was iron. The reason they gave it to him is unusually said. It was iron. It wasn't military-issue brass, and it almost certainly belonged to an army contract surgeon called James DeWolf, who was probably the only man on the battlefield with non-issue spurs. And now, this—the this, the, the guy who told me that was uh, Dr. Donald Rickey. He's, um He was five years the historian at the battlefield, and he's not just anybody he was assistant director of the u.s army military history institute so he's actually got you know a reputation and he's careful he's a careful researcher he said the spur was found just where the psychic said it was just below the ridge where de Wolf's body was found and de Wolf was with major marcus reno's battalion which was a small part of customs force so that all set you know that, that sort of you know fitted exactly with what he said and even the scene that he saw through the doctor's eyes—that that, that, Starkle saw through the doctor's eyes—was confirmed. The Sioux and the Cheyenne—they actually did kill cavalry horses by the stream, and they did set fire to the grass as they moved off after Custer. And, um, and they found they found horse bones, you know, in in the wall of the stream and all the rest of it. But it wasn't the only test. They they tested him with cartridge shells that they found at Little Bighorn, and he described accurately where each was found. But one of them puzzled him. He said, how could this be? And he duplicated this Indian's action of loading his carbine. And he was trying to, s- Starkle, the, the the psychic, was trying to slap the bullet into the rifle butt. He said, it can't be. This this is how you load a rifle. And Mangum, the historian, said it was a Spencer cartridge, and you load it through a tubular magazine that goes to the butt plate of the rifle. Um, you know, the psychic was correct. Yeah. And, and they brought other things up, Tim. Um, There was a Martin uh, .50 shell case, and um, it brought back memories from an Indian warrior who'd fired it at the battle, and who was thinking of his squaw who'd been killed 18 months before. And um, the psychic gave them details, and the historians pieced together the tale of—they call it the Bates fight at Snake Creek in Wyoming, where three squaws were killed, just as as the psychic had described it, from handling this bullet, you know, fired hundreds of miles away and hundreds of years ago. Yeah, well, 1876
2: was it? Yeah. Yeah. So stunning. I mean, like I said, how can you? These are the kind of stories that just leave you flummoxed, really, about what this is. You know, this what they what absolutely what, do.
0: Absolutely do, and you know, is somebody tap and somebody's tapping into somebody else's consciousness 150 years on? You know, how do they do that? It's astounding, uh, it, and you know, actually, this wasn't the most astounding, uh, you know, psychic story I've done, but it's 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 good convincing evidence from very very credible witnesses and people who've researched it themselves. You know, they, they, it's not oh, I heard it from you know my mother-in-law. You know. Now,
2: growing up, did you have an interest in, in this sort of subject or were you sort of just – did you just sort of like you know gravitate towards it as you became a reporter? Not um,
0: particularly. When I was very small, we had um, – we lived in a, um, a Victorian house. It was quite a large house. It had been a splendid house before we long before we got it. Um, mm-hmm. And I actually did see um, a, a ghost of an old man. Um, I didn't know he was a ghost. Uh, this little old man and I saw him twice and he was doing the same thing each time just going across a landing and into my parents um, room and I mentioned it to my mother I was probably you know five or six years old and said who's who that man upstairs and I described him and, and she said oh you know it's uh, Mr. Isherwood previous owner of the place um, and there was no alarm or concern about it it wasn't you know spooky in any way but I you know I had that personal personal experience hmm. Um but no, I can't say I was particularly interested, you know, which in a way is a good thing because I wasn't predisposed to either accept stuff or, or deny it, you know? Right, exactly. Yeah, that's
2: kind of what I was getting at with the question. You know, you didn't go into these stories as a true believer. You went into them, you know, trying to uncover the story. I think you had yeah, more point.
0: Yeah, and they're interesting stories, you know, that's the thing as well. Um, I mean, some of them are so fake, it's not true. I, for instance, they sent me to. Um, a uh, place in uh, Pompano Beach. There was a fellow there, and he had some medical condition. And if I, I think if he tensed up, he could actually make blood pop out of his forearms. <laughs> and he was he was persuading gullible people that you know he was a reincarnation of um, what was it? What did you call him? Princess Tara. That was it, Princess Tara. So <laughs> some Egyptian princess. I'm not kidding. This is true. <laughs> people believe anything. So anyway, I go along and. Um, He's there with one of his acolytes, you know. He's lying on he's lying on this. He said, I'll 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 bring the princess through now, you know, and he, he's he's gonna be a medium. And he lies on the on a bench and he crosses his folds his hands across his chest and then he changes his voice and says, I am the Princess Tara from three thousand BC So I said, How do you know it's B C princess? Ah. <laughs> and he says, he says it this way, he says, do not mock me, mortal. I'm going, all right, you phony. <laughs> 3,000 BC. 3,000 more
2: years would be there. Yeah. Now, when you went to, you know, investigate these stories and stuff like that, if it, if it was a no-go, that was okay with the with the folks at the inquiry? Oh, yeah, like, yeah,
0: sure. That was the thing. Um, that was, the, actually, that was if if I came back and said hey it doesn't work it doesn't work, that's the end of it. With a, a celeb story, they'll say well find mm-hmm. something else about them, you know. Yeah. But with, with the with parapsychology, no, it just doesn't work, mate, you know. Although once once they sent me to talk to 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 interview a talking cat. <laughs> <laughs> I've interviewed a talking gorilla, um, but that's something else. Um, So I I go all the way out to Knob Noster, Missouri, which is where where I can never forget that name, to meet Mrs. Nellie Frerking, God love her. And she wasn't a bit um, surprised that somebody come all the way across country to see her and a talking cat. I think the cat's name was Maisie. And um, and and I'm thinking, this is going to be really interesting, you know. And I said, um, you know, can we Yeah, come in, come in. She says, Okay, talk to the gentleman Maisie. After a bit of prompting the cat said it's one word vocabulary. Mommy, mommy. That was it. <laughs> it was kind of across between a meow and a yawn.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, dear me. One thing that, that people can check out, we'll we'll play it here on the show, but people can also check it out at, at the website banisterbooks dot com and there's links all over ben all of America for that folks, you should be able to find it quite easily. Um, is this EVP that you captured uh, during a phone conversation with uh, with someone in the UK? And, and and I'm not doing the story very good justice. So why don't you why
0: don't you talk about it well, and yeah. uh, we'll play the EVP for folks? Excellent. It, it's I, I still get a prickle in my neck, actually, in the back of my neck when I listen to this thing. The the situation was I was interviewing a woman called Ray Koch, and she was the curator. Of the old stone house on M Street in Washington, D.C. Um, it's still there. It's the presumably, it's supposed to be the oldest house in Washington. And um, oh, off the top of my head, I don't remember. It was probably built in the 17th century. And I know that the, the earliest occupants were uh, for about 100, 150 years were English families. Um, They handed it on down, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I was in... The the place is... It's a National Park Service facility. It's, um, uh, you know, visited daily by the public. And um, they've been having a lot of trouble with ghosts in the place. There was one particular man, a bull-like man. A lot of people had come in and complained. They they didn't know he was a ghost. He was trying to push them down the stairs. These are visitors to a National Park site, you know. I mean... And they would, they would come and find the curator and say, who's that man upstairs? He's so angry and he's pushing us. And we got into it. They didn't even know it was a ghost. And so he was obviously able to do some physical thing if they could push them, yeah. which is, again, really unusual. So anyway, she's descri- Ray's describing these different ghosts. They've got um, four male ghosts in there and two female ghosts. And then there's a child ghost who runs along the upper corridor or upper balcony. I've not been to the house, to be honest. Um, but they, you know, they, they'd seen and heard him. And while I'm doing a phone interview with her, and uh, I said something like, in the interview, I said, "Well, how many ghosts have you got in there, Ray? Let me see, is it, is it five or six? You know, the, and then there's a small one." And then she starts to tell me she's talking, and then over her voice comes a voice that corrects what I've just said. It says four, two and a kid. So it's it wasn't me speaking, it wasn't her. And it's I didn't hear it during the conversation, which was absolutely interesting. Now I write shorthand and I went I, I took a shorthand note and I was a bit unclear when I came to write the story how many ghosts and I went back to the tape because I said, Oh, I asked her that. And I listened to the tape and nearly fell off my chair because this voice comes in from nowhere and corrects what I just said. I got the number wrong, but I didn't hear it. And she obviously didn't hear it. She's talking. <sighs> I'm. It's. It's not a fake. It's not in any way hooked up. I have the. I, in fact, you know, Tim, I have the um, original tape here still. Um, I'd be willing to let anybody who's got the right credentials examine it. That's, I have no qualms about that. But something came on, and an and intelligence came on, and corrected, and provided accurate information. Stunning to me.
2: Right, right. And, and, and let's play it now for folks so they can hear what
0: we're talking about. When you say you've got five people um, in there, or you've got a child in there as well, have you ever seen that one, Smarret?
2: And, and as you point out in the book, too, and as folks could hear there, hopefully, uh,
0: that the, the voice was like an English voice. It sounded like it, it had was, an English It that, was, that's intriguing me because the earliest occupants of the place were English, according to what, you know, um, what I'd heard and what Ray had told me at the time, which would make sense because, you know, the early settlers anyway, uh, you know, in, 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 um, uh, in the East Coast and the Northeast were mostly from England or Germany. You know? Yeah and the the voice actually and i didn't say this but it, it's true um the voice actually it to me it's midlands english it's the accent is a genuine english accent um and now if it were, were there are re, it's a regional accent to sort of the almost north of birmingham you know in, in the u k interesting um, very yeah very very impressive actually
2: and I'm I'm looking here on, on Wikipedia just at the at the sheer number of stories that the that the Inquirer's broken, you know, in recent years that, you know, uh turn out to be true that get denied at first. It's pretty stunning here, uh
0: that Well, oh, you know, some big ones, you know. Um O J, of course. They wouldn't have got O.J. for the civil suit at least. Uh, you know, it was the broke that, we were involved in that one. In fact I wrote part of the um a a book about O J for uh for American Media. Um, Gary Hart, he was a presidential candidate. Do you remember Monkey Business? Oh, yeah. Gary Condit. Gary Condit. Um, he tried to sue us. Um, although they, uh, although we, Condit was involved with Chandra Levy, of course. I was on that story. Um, that was kind of a messy story. He, he obviously did not. Um, he wasn't involved in her murder in any way. Uh, they found some Salvadorian who'd done that. But he, was, um, he lost his career as a member of Congress. John Edwards, of course, he's, he lied repeatedly. He was another presidential candidate. These are all good stories. That, but the Inquirer, you know, they dropped, they dropped the ball on one. They, they, um, and I tell that story in, in Tabloid Man uh, about Jonestown. Yeah, yeah. Because GP didn't, didn't give it credit, credence. And if, if they'd acted on it and done the story, they'd probably save those 900 people.
2: Right, right. What I love too about that story in the book is that the, he he vetoes the story two weeks in a row. The next week it happens. The third week it happens, and yeah. then a few weeks later he fires the guy who had the story because right. <laughs> he didn't want that's the right. reminder yeah. around that he that's dropped right, the ball. Yeah,
0: yeah. He was he was not not going to be. He's not going to have evidence of him being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess like when you're a tyrant, that's one of the things that happens. You can do it.
2: Now, yeah. aside from uh, the anthrax attacks, which I want to do want to ask you about, uh, I thought it would be interesting to ask if, if did nine eleven change anything? You know, for the tabloid industry. I mean, obviously, you know, people always say like, that the
0: world changed on nine eleven, but did you see any sort of change in? No, not really. Um, that the, they were in decline already by you know by two thousand one. Um, they were still struggling along, but it was it was a decline. You know, declining circulations. Um, no, I can't. I can't think that their their focus is more to Hollywood than to um, than to civil affairs. Yeah. Know, than to, than to New York, like that.
2: Now, talk a little bit about that anthrax attack, though, because that was stunning when I read that in the book. That uh, the the building was shut down for six years, the headquarters, and that the uh, the photo library of five million photos was was deemed uh, contaminated and had to be destroyed. And some things are like priceless photos
0: absolutely were absolutely were um you know Elvis the last picture of Elvis that, that that you know on the cover I have a I have one of those the the, the I can't remember what year the attack was it had to be about ninety five ninety six um, uh, but anyway it um it was early on and it was early in the use of CDs to store images and they'd start instead of having you know neg- I mean if some of my pictures were in there that went I mean my baffling chair of death pictures went they they were in there but nobody could use them because you know they could be in, they could be contaminated yeah and so everything everything was destroyed you know f- what five or six million images but the only thing that they saved out of it was um a jukebox Full of CDs of images. That was a primitive storage that they'd, they'd had. That was just the beginning of CDs. Putting your, you know, your photo on, on, on a CD. Not even a DVD. Um, but everything, all the other things went. You know, the, 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 the celebrities, the, the, um, the news stories, the ghost stories. You know, everything. You think of a library, a photo library, absolutely priceless. Yeah. In this way.
2: That's just stunning. It makes you wonder really uh, yeah. what was behind all that because I'm sure there was people and, well, and I, it, you know, organizations I just, that have been happy to have had that library destroyed in some ways.
0: Do you know, didn't, wasn't there just last week, didn't Ted Kaczynski get somehow involved in this? Weren't they re- looking at his involvement, his possible involvement in more um, attacks? I know he was being looked at for the 82 Tylenol thing. That's right. It was Tylenol. That's right. There was a, a DoD guy who was attacking uh, the popular media, and I guess it would be it would get you a lot of attention, you know, um, if you attack the most prominent um, uh, source of popular culture. However, however, liked or disliked it is, yeah, I guess being outstanding in your field in any way is going to be um, going to do once you pop your head above the level of the trench, you're going to get it shot at. Whether it's the New York Times or the National Enquirer, you know.
2: Now, what I got to ask you about what my favorites. like I said, I was born in '79, so you know, my my yeah. formative years were sort of like the late '80s and the '90s. So I have a I have a sort of special place in my heart for Weekly World News. Oh, God, love them! I love the wacky, yeah. How did that wacky whole World News. How did that come up? I mean, how did that even? Because I mean, they they. By the time I was old enough to read the the tabloids, it seemed like. National Enquirer has sort of uh, shaken off a lot of the paranormal, and, and a lot of that stuff sort of had shifted over to Weekly World News.
0: Yeah, what what happened was the Enquirer went to printing in color in about probably 80... Maybe, maybe it was as early as... Maybe it was as early as... It had to be. It had to be 77 or something like that, I think. Anyway, but then they had the old printing presses in Pompano Beach in Florida, and the Weekly World News looked just the way the old inquiry used to look in black and white. Okay. So Gene Pope had these printing presses and nothing to do, you see. So he said, well, we'll let's run a magazine, you know, uh, let's run a paper, a, a book off that. And that was the birth of the Weekly World News. And the Wacky never had a staff of more than about six people. And um, these guys decided that they had a, a room full of experts, so there's no need to go out and bother other people with interviews and things. They could just do their own. So they'd find a story and embellish it and put it in there, and pretty soon they were selling about a million copies a week, mostly to college kids, Yeah. because they were good inventive stories, and they'd do these really crude uh, Photoshop type things, (laughs) you know, Hillary Clinton marrying an alien or whatever, wonderful stuff. Um, They actually used one of my predictions, I used to do a prediction that I didn't personally do a predictions but I would put together uh, the the annual and biannual psychic predictions issues you know we mm-hmm. get a dozen psychics to well the psychics would always want to predict you know that a famous person will die and we wanted them to predict something like you know Doris Day's thighs will be eaten by a pack of wild dogs <laughs> so we had to kind of meet somewhere in the middle and um, I actually um I, you know, I uh, spent some creative time putting together interesting predictions, which i then mentioned to the psychics, the commercial psychics who weren't psychic at all. And uh, they'd agree to them, and they'd get their few hundred dollars, you know, and the publicity. Um, and one of them that I put together, the Weekly World News, did me the honor of running as a story. And the prediction was that the Saudis would tow an iceberg from the Arctic – to Saudi Arabia as a source of fresh water. They'd have a terrible time getting it through the Straits of Gibraltar, you know, because they're only eight miles wide. Yeah. So it was a pretty big iceberg. <laughs> and they'd they get it ashore, and when it melted inside, they'd find the remains of an alien space expedition to Earth which I thought was a good prediction. <laughs> Chance is a bit remote of it coming true, but it was a good <laughs> prediction. <laughs> so, of course, the Weekly World News ran this as a story that the Saudis had done this and then hushed it up, you know, and that Saudi uh, aeronautical engineers were reverse-engineering the UFO to find out how it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that the, when they broke into it, they found a crystal altar inside with a picture of Tim Binnall. <laughs>
2: Now you I, I you had left the Enquirer before Pope died. What was the mood like sort of when all that went down? Cuz I mean this guy was like a titan of of the
0: industry. So what what, what were people saying? What was it like? The very yeah uh, yeah the 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 editor uh who you know was Pope's henchman uh immediately made a bid for power and when Pope's widow said I want his um I want his desk, you know, taken out of his office. He said no no the desk is a symbol of of his power, and I want to keep it. And between between this and that, and various other things that went on between the editor and the widow, they put the editor's picture up in the in the lobby of the Enquirer, with a note saying, "This man is not to be allowed on the premises. <laughs> Security to throw him off if he comes in." <laughs> oh wow! But he he called the staff together. I mean, I wasn't there because I was on the west coast now, and um, he called the staff together and said, "This place is no longer a rich man's toy." and uh, you're all going to have to buckle down, and you're not going to be paid very much. You're going to have to work a lot harder. <laughs> that was the, that was the gist of the inspiring speech. Uh, and they sold the paper off for $418 million, I think it was. Wow. Mrs. Pope, the widow, went to Rome on a six-month shopping spree. <laughs> um, and a couple of asset strippers came in, um, stripped out everything they could, you know, things like the distribution company, um And uh, ran the paper for about a year living off inventory without ordering new stories in. Oh, wow. And then they were able to sort of show these books that showed that their editorial costs... They they fired a couple hundred people. They showed that their editorial costs were really low because they'd been living off their accumulated fat. And they went public with it. And um, launched it at something like $16 a share. So half a dozen people got very rich, and all those shareholders are presently holding some damn worthless paper. That's <laughs> you know worth pennies. Um, it was a classic asset stripping operation, I'd say. It's very disappointing. It, it
2: I mean, yeah. just the, yeah. the stories, the stories from from when you were there in the 70s are
0: just you know. Yeah, and it wasn't just me. I mean, you've got to think, there were 80 of us, some of us, um, all out every week doing these stories, you know, doing different stories. You know, um, one of my colleagues went down to, you know, Mexico City when the gas lines erupted and the streets were falling in, (laughs) you know, Um, and he's there, you know, he's on the next plane down there and sending back reports that you'd now be seeing, you know, on national television here. Well, probably not here because it's Mexico. They, you know, if it's not here in the States, people tend not to be as interested. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, no, we covered things. You know, if it was Princess Caroline's wedding, we had a – I was on that one, you know, in Monaco. We had a whole team went out there. I went to the U.K. for the first test tube baby. Oh, if, if here's, here's a, uh, it's not a plug, it's, it's a bit of joy for your listeners. Go to the website, go to banisterbooks.com and look up Joe Mullins' uh, report. Joe was with me on that and he became the uh, Laura Brown correspondent, you know, the, the test tube baby, the first test tube baby. Yeah. And he tells a beautiful story of how he nearly killed the test tube baby. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. When yeah. she
0: was choking to death, yeah.
2: Yeah, just, you know, reading the book, I just kept thinking to myself, I was born in the wrong time. I wish I could have been there in those days because it just sounds like, you know, you're chasing the stories.
0: You, you, they send you on a yeah. drop of a
2: hat to just go after the
0: craziest it magic- stuff. It was a magical thing, yeah. It was It was an echo of, of the British newspaper scene, you know, be- after World War II um, up until the 60s and 70s when it was a similar thing there's an element of piracy there's an element of adventure there's a lot of fun involved and some there's some talented people doing some hard work but at the end of it all you you got the reward you know you saw the stuff and people enjoyed it yeah yeah um it'll happen again in a different way it'll happen you know with well we're now moving of course you know to 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 the mass media's moving to um uh the, you know, into into electronic media. Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems Sports. like all print media is in bad shape now, anyway. So well, what's what's happening now, of course, is that anybody with a cell phone can be a reporter. Right. But what you read, you can't trust anymore, because <laughs> you don't know what that person's training or inclination is. So, you know, when Sarah Palin's telling us, you know, what Paul Revere really was telling people, you know, that he was he wasn't saying he was saying. You know that uh, he was warning the British that the British were coming. I'm going. Well, this is this is symptomatic of anybody can be a reporter. It's not accurate, yeah. but anybody can do it. So I guess the, the pendulum will come back. We'll come back to accuracy, and we'll see. We'll see some you know um, electronic version of the New York Times or whatever.
2: Yeah, yeah. That people can trust. Well, just uh, just one last sort of uh, aspect of the tabloids that that. I I thought was interesting from the book too uh, was uh, the the story that always gets me. Every time I'm in in the uh, supermarket, I always sort of like (laughs) have to read the article. It's these like uh, last days articles.
0: Oh jeez, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: just stunning. And there's always it's it's like every other week it's someone someone on there together. Same
0: person usually. (laughs) It's usually Doris Day. Poor old girl. She must have died 15 times or been, been on the verge of it 15 times. Th- in fact, actually, I've personally done at least four last days of Doris Day, the last of Doris. I think she'll outlive us all. God love the girl, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, they, they like that. They like they like to sh- – it, It's the Germans call it Schadenfreude, don't they? It's taking pleasure in other people's discomfort. And so you know they like to show these pictures of you know people who've actually well it's Elizabeth Taylor well she's finally gone but you know somebody that, who's had it all and is now suffering through the end this ghastly fascination. <laughs> yeah, it's very morose. Like I said, and then you
2: know you you, you don't realise some of these they're just people with all their makeup on or they're they're aged so you don't really you know but you're in the you're in the <laughs> checkout aisle and you look and you're like oh my god. <laughs> She's gonna die like any day now. So they they always get me though. So I was I
0: was happy to read in in the book that you know <laughs> that this is commonplace. That right, right. Any picture are. any picture of Clint Eastwood these days is gonna look like his last days, and he's hale and hearty. So. you know. <laughs> <laughs> just got a few wrinkles. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it's a patina of living, I guess. I guess so. Now, as I said, I mean, I
2: can't put this book over enough, and uh, I'll put it over a few more times here as we as we close the book, no pun intended, uh, on this <laughs> conversation. But, you know, what's next for Paul Bannister? I, I presume you're still doing some freelance work because some of the stories in the book were, were pretty recent. So, I mean, what, what have you been up to uh, since the book came out, aside from obviously the, the press tour and stuff?
0: You know, what do, what do you have cooking here uh, for the well, future? Yeah, in self-defense, I, I've moved away from, from the tabloids. I've had to do that because there's no income there. But um, I've, I wrote this book. I've just written another one, which is nothing like it. it's. It's a historical novel. It's based on a true story. There's a sample of that, actually, in, in, um on, on my website. There's a little bit of it there. So if you look at um, banisterbooks.com, you can actually read the next one. Um, but I might—I uh, don't know. There's, there's a lot more material from the uh, the days of the tabloids that uh, that might work, and there's a lot more material, frankly, from my psychic uh, psychic work that um, that I could turn into a book. So who knows? Maybe maybe I'll become a correspondent for Binal of America. I would absolutely be honoured. I would love that. Now teasing you, it, Tim. It be. Oh, now you are heard my It Doesn't come up to your standards, I'm sure. <laughs> no, we don't pay, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we're
2: at a push, I guess. Paul, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. And folks, if you think we we. Gave away the book here. You're sadly mistaken. We didn't even get into a, t- a ton of stuff that's in there. I purposely didn't even bring up the whole Richard Simmons story. So you you, <laughs> you, you got to pick up the book just for that. And uh, you know we have Paul to blame for uh, possibly for Dwayne Dog Chapman's rise to fame. Oh yeah. We've we've got a scoop in the book about uh, Oprah Winfrey's funeral plans. Yeah. There's true, true. a whole bunch of uh, amazing survival stories from people uh, who had near-death, literal near-death experiences that are just stunning, and a whole bunch of celebrity stories and paranormal stories that we just didn't get into here because I I want folks to go out and get this book. Trust me, my friends, do yourself a favor. Go out and pick up Tabloid Man. It is absolutely amazing. You are going to love this book because I was just thrilled by it and captivated by it, And, and much like this conversation,
0: it was a lot of fun. Paul, I can't thank you enough. And I really hope we can do this again sometime it's been it's been a great pleasure to be to talk to you Tim and to be on the show i'm I'm pink with embarrassment and time any time at all for you, my friend thank you very much sir. it's been great thank you so much
2: that does it for this installment of b o a audio season six big big thanks of course to Paul bannister for coming on the show. be sure to check out his website www.banisterbooks.com dot bannisterbooks you spell that b a n n i s t e r Books.com For more information on Tabloid Man and The Baffling Chair of Death, as well as other works from Paul Bannister. Moving right along now, it's been way too long since we dove into the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag, but we're going to do it right now and highlight a couple of emails from the BOA Audio listeners and also take care of some in-house notes. The first one here comes from Ben, no hometown listed, and here's what he has to say. Thank you for all of your work on BOA. I've listened to every episode and continue to be enthralled. Great guests and your interview style is reminiscent of early 90s Art Bell, in the way you'll let the guests say their part, no matter how insane. I've noticed an issue with your iTunes downloads. They stopped adding new episodes over a month ago, and I was wondering if you had any info on that. Hopefully the newer shows will be added soon, but I feel like I'm missing out. Thank you for your time and your work, Ben. There you go. That's the perfect segue into the in-house notes. First of all, thank you for writing in, Ben. Thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate that. Art Bell is certainly a hero of mine, and to have my style compared to his is truly humbling. I definitely like to let the guests have the floor when they're on the program and say what they want to say without interruption, or overt skepticism. I let the audience decide what they want to believe, and I let them do their own research into the matter. Now, with regards to the iTunes downloads and the whole issue surrounding the BOA Audio Archive and the big project, moving it over to Cyber Ears. Well, we had a little bump in the road because I had to take a little time away from BOA to attend my brother's wedding and all the festivities surrounding that but prior to that we completed the major part of the project which was transferring all of the mp3 archive over to CyberEars.com so as it stands right now the complete BOA audio archive has been moved over to CyberEars now it's just a matter of me sitting down and fixing the iTunes feed and adjusting all of the links at BOA. I'm hoping and thinking and really, really optimistic that by the time folks are listening to this, the iTunes feed will be fixed, and I'm going to sit down and just start fixing all of the links on all of the pages for previous BOA Audio episodes. I'm hoping that's not going to take too long. I'm well aware that it's certainly going to take a few hours at least, but... It has to be done. It's something that has been really weighing us down for the last few months and has been a huge thorn in my side. Believe me, if you could see the emails I get from people day after day, week after week, now month after month, asking what's going on with the iTunes feed, what's going on with the Audio Archive at BOA, I have just been inundated with those emails. Thank you to all the folks who have been emailing me about that. Your voices have been heard I'm well aware of the situation, and we are nearly out of the woods. So there's the update on that. Hopefully, by the time you hear from me on the next edition of BOA Audio, there'll be no more talk about the big audio transfer project because it will have been totally completed. The next email here comes from Jim. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. Please investigate the mysterious creature Meth Man of Humboldt County, California. These creatures appear after rainstorms and on hot sunny days, are seen at night around dumpsters, and make strange sounds, and look basically like zombies. Besides, we could use the tourist trade. Jim. I've never even heard of this. I'm not sure if this is like a joke about meth addicts, or if it's an actual creature that people have seen in Humboldt County. I'm going to have to look more into this, but maybe other people out there have heard of this thing, Meth Man of Humboldt County. Again, I'm skeptical. I think it's some kind of joke, but I will look into it, and thank you for the suggestion, Jim. And with that, we will close the BOA Audio Listener Feedback Mailbag kind of early here this week because we are already about a week behind on where I wanted to be on getting this episode out to folks. So I want to hurry up and do that. And the sooner I can get the episode out, the sooner I can turn my attention towards wrapping up this audio project. For all the folks out there who want to get in touch with me for future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback, here's how you can do it. Simply write to BOAAudio at Hotmail.com or go to binallofamerica.com, of America.com, of America.com, and click the contact button. Or head on over to the official BOA forum, the USOFE.com, T H E U S O F E.com. That is, of course, BOA's Paranormal Playground, the official Banal of America forum. Lots of discussion going on there regarding the paranormal and pop culture at the U.S. of E. And, of course, I'm available on Twitter and Facebook, so look me up on there under the name Banal. Follow me, befriend me, poke me, it's all good, and we'd love to have you as part of BOA's online circle of friends. Up next, let's take a moment and thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carollin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Since the last time you heard from me, we got a couple of new columns at the website, one from Regan Lee discussing the strange relationship between humans and lobsters, and Leslie talks about the wildfires raging into New Mexico in the latest installment of Grey Matters. We got an all-new Richards Room 101 lined up for later this week, as well as new stuff from Bruce Pretty and Tony Morrill and Tina Senna. So lots of great columns in the till from the BOA staff. But I also want to take a moment here... And offer uh, congratulations to two members of the BOA staff. First of all, our webmaster Jeremy Boston, now the proud father of a baby boy. Congratulations to my good buddy Jeremy Boston. And I want to congratulate former BOA staff writer A.M. Murphy, who is also the mother of a new baby boy as well. So two new BOA babies out there in the last few weeks and the second generation of been all of america continues to grow thanks to jeremy boston and am murphy i want to congratulate both of them once again wish them the very best of luck and welcome their children into the world we say it week in and week out folks if you're only listening to boa audio and you're not reading the columns at been all of america then you're only getting half of the story boa make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Now comes the part of the program where we take off the hat and pass it around to the audience and ask you to help us out and make a donation to Banal of America. You can do that simply by going to BOA and clicking the PayPal button. That's right there on the homepage as well as the BOA audio archive. But if you don't want to do an online donation, you can send us a Snail mail donation to our P.O. Box. You can find that at Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass., 01866. And once again, that's P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass., 01866. And if you're going to send us a donation via snail mail, please make it payable to Tim Banal and not to Banal of America because my bank will not cash those checks. And then I have to get back in touch with you and we have to go through the whole process all over again. As we have been saying year after year at the end of the program, no donation is too small and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running freely available and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. Let me throw in another plug here at the end of the show. We talked about it on the last edition of the program, but I want to mention it once again here now, and that is, of course, the third annual Exeter UFO Festival, September 3rd in Exeter, New Hampshire. Stanton Friedman, Richard Dolan, Kathleen Martin, and, of course, myself as the MC for the big event. It is a fun, informative, and free festival. For the whole family. Tons of stuff going on there for the Exeter UFO Festival. As I said, it's totally free. If you can make the trip up to Exeter, New Hampshire, you definitely want to go out of your way to do that. It is a blast every year. I like to call it the paranormal party of the year because it is huge. We had so much fun last year, and it's only going to be bigger and better this year. You can find out more about the big event at ExeterUFOFestival.com. Or click on the banner at BOA. Next week on the program, I'm kind of debating who will be the next guest on the program. We've got about five episodes in the can right now. I could take my pick. I'd originally hoped to do Spontaneous Human Combustion for July 4th weekend. But this episode's already kind of coming out here on July 4th weekend. So we're a little bit behind the times, if you will. And it's a very... Good chance that the next installment of BOA Audio will be coming at you around this time next week, well past July 4th. So we're going to bump Spontaneous Human Combustion up another week or so and bring in one of our old friends on the program here for the next installment of the show. So the guest next week on the program will be our old buddy Peter Robbins making his return to BOA Audio. We're going to have a UFO jam session pretty much threw the questions out the window, because I've talked to Peter on countless occasions about a whole bunch of different stuff in the world of ufology, and I want to get his take on UFO studies, where ufology seems to be right now, and where it needs to go in the future. So it is certainly an enlightening conversation. It is a lot of laughs, a lot of fun, and it is quite the enjoyable UFO jam session with the incomparable Peter Robbins. That'll be next week on the program. In two weeks, Spontaneous Human Combustion, so stay tuned for that at BOA as well. Plus, we've got tons and tons more fantastic episodes lined up for you. As I said, we've been taping a slew of shows this month, and I think people are going to really dig them because there are some wild installments of the program lined up for you in that mix. And with that said, we'll close the book on this edition of BOA Audio. Big, big thanks once again to Paul Bannister for coming on the show. Check out BannisterBooks.com. And definitely, folks, get your hands on Tabloid Man and the Baffling Chair of Death. You will not be disappointed. Also, I want to thank Ben and Jim for contributing to BOA Audio listener feedback this week. And, of course, I want to thank all of the great BOA Audio listeners out there. Tuning in right now at the end of the program. The hardcore BOA Audio listeners, the folks who have been with us through thick and thin over the years, you guys are awesome. This program would not be what it is without you. Trust me, I know that better than anybody in the whole wide world, and I'm just truly humbled by your unending support of this program. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim and all, thanking you for listening and signing off.